Bernie Sendrick talks about the unique jobs his parents held and what prompted him to get into law enforcement. You know, I came from a family of, we worked for an acronym to agencies. My, both my mom and dad were NSAers. Um, you know, it was kind of just, as I said, it's kind of foretold. You kind of just follow in some shape, manner, or form in, in your parents' uh, footsteps a little bit. Um, you know, but I kind of started out as a cop. I kind of went that direction because I had uh, uh, paid attention and saw three, three, the homicide of three police officers that really had a profound effect on me. Uh, one was Marty Ward from Baltimore City, who was killed in an undercover operation. One was Trooper Ted Wolf, who was killed on the side of 95 uh, by a crew out of D.C. and uh, or person tied to a crew out of D.C. And then the other one was Kiki Camarena. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to Game of Crimes. I am the ultimate host, especially of this particular episode, Morgan Wright, here literally with my partner in crime. <laughs> Steve Murphy, but why this particular episode? What's that about? I, I just, I, you know, got to keep it fresh. Got to keep it different oh, each time. Okay. <laughs> I'm with you. And, and right, by the way, right. you can call me Murph. You can call me. You can call me Murph. Just don't call me all late right. for dinner. Just call you late for dinner. All right. Hey, real quickly. Um, before we get started, just uh, Victor Avila's episode, man, killer. And, and you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to make a play on words. I mean, just we got so many good comments back about that, and just the story, and just to hear it from him, and then to hear about the new information about what may have been in the cargo of that, Steve. Mm -hmm. It's I, it's unbelievable, and it's unbelievable that if this works out and it's true, heads need to roll. That is for sure. And it reminds me, too, of Jay Dobbins, too, the way he kind of got screwed over and Victor got screwed over. Here are people who put their lives on the line. Literally, they've been shot. Both of these guys were shot. Both these guys did their duty. And yet this is how they get treated. I'm telling you, Steve, um, again, it's never the agency. You right. know what it is? It's the people in the agency. An agency doesn't do anything to to people. It's people who do things to people. So, yep. but anyway, man, uh, and, and plus two, uh, we put that episode out on Valentine's day, the 14th and the 15th was the anniversary of Jaime Zapata being killed in the line of duty in a foreign country, you know, in Mexico serving his country. Yeah. And, and, and we also just recently found out that, uh, Victor kind of sandbagged us and didn't tell us a couple things he's known that for. Son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is something to be proud of. <laughs> He holds the world's record for the longest pistol shot. Yep. 2,010 yards. If you want to see it, go on, uh, what is that, YouTube, I think it is? You know what I think I may do, Steve? I'll, I'll update the webpage and I'll put that link on there about how Victor sandbagged us. Because what did you say it took? It took 12 seconds for the round to hit the target. 11.7 seconds. And, and the video is there. You can see it. It's just you know, Google up uh, Victor Avila. Uh, world, world record. record. Yeah, world record. And that should pull it up, man. And, and he, what he also didn't tell us is a year before he'd set a previous record with a nine millimeter. This was a 10 millimeter shot. So we're going to have, we're going to have to have him back on the episode and just, you know, Raggy. haul him before, haul him before the, <laughs> the inspection board here. That's right. That's right. You're held out <laughs> on us, brother. 
All right. Well, hey, guys, we hope you enjoyed that. We hope you enjoy what's coming up. So if you do like what you heard and you do like what you're about to hear, just head on over to Apple and Spotify. Give us those five stars. It really helps out a lot. Head on over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. A lot of good pictures that Victor uh, gave to us that the, the Suburban that those guys were driving that day all shot up, the cargo in the back. We've got some really good stuff coming up, too, on future episodes. So always go over to the website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. Dot com uh, and look and with Victor's book agent under fire book.com the the link to the, his book is on there got to go download it and read it I mean what a true American hero so also follow us on the thing called social media at game of crimes on Twitter at game of crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram and but where you got to be we got some great stuff coming out man patreon dot com slash game of crimes our new segment on 911 what's your emergency we got a lot of great feedback on that and we're going to do something exclusive uh coming up here with uh, uh chris and dave uh the guys who were the inspiration for season three of narcos yeah uh, and taking down the cali cartel so that one you're going to have to be uh, up a level uh to get access to this one because this one's going to be exclusive uh just to guardian of the realm and warden of the throne levels but I'm telling you, but we've got so much other great content out there, our random surprise, our case of the month, things like that. Just really good stuff that are going to be out there. So you guys got to be over there to get on it. Um, if you also want to support us just with the one-off, go to paypal.com and use our email, Podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash gameofcrimes, whatever makes it easier for you to support this show. Hey, by the way, speaking of a show, this is a show about crime, Murph. I didn't know if you knew that. Uh, you know, we I talk about bad that. people do. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but... We will never take ourselves serious. We're going to have some fun. We're going to bring some cool guests, but we're going to have some fun. And one of the first ways we have fun, what is it, Murph? Guess what time it is? It's time for Small, Small Town, Town Police, Police It's the 5-0 coming to get you. And all of these, again, here we go again. All of these come from you, our players out there. So the first one comes from Duke. It's called. He goes by Duke Silver on Instagram, but I think the guy is, the guy is in the profession because uh, he was actually down at. He's down. Uh, that's something with the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force down there in Dallas. He knew about the hostage standoff we talked about in Colleyville. Cool. So uh, he's got. Uh, as soon as we get our PO box up and running, he's got a challenge coin for us coming our way. But anyway, here's what Duke sent. <laughs> This is one a couple of folks had sent it in to us. Also, Emily Field did too. So we got this from Duke and Emily Field via our Game of Crimes fan page. Steve, and I thought you, I think you saw the story, right? I'm not sure. An Oregon woman was duped into thinking she was training <laughs> to be a DEA agent for almost a year. Yeah, boy, I tell you what, P.T. Barnum said it best. There's a sucker born every sucker minute. Sucker born every and this unidentified woman who wasn't charged was given a fake badge and photo. This dude by the name of Robert Edward Golden tricked her into thinking she was training to be a DEA agent for a year. Uh, they found him with fake badges, tactical vests, and a rifle that was actually a BB gun. Uh, when caught, the man told agents he and his training had the equipment because they were into cosplay, I think that's costume play. It's a portmanteau, as they say. It's a combination between costumes and play. Mm -hmm. uh, she thought she was training to be a DEA agent. Um, he is accused, and the way they found him was uh, apparently there was a traffic stop or there was a sergeant from a police department walked up and saw this stuff in his trunk and said, hey, where do you got this? And he said, we're feds. You know, we're both, you know, we're <laughs> both on the job. It's like, <laughs> we've seen enough fake badges in our time, man. Uh, so. That's not DEA. That's D-U-H. Duh. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so hey man, so uh, unbelievable. It, yeah, it, 
by the way, what is this secret Jason Bourne training? Anyway, hey, our next one comes from, uh, he has been renamed. It's Logan Donut. He wants to go by Dorout, but it's uh, Dorhout, I think. It's uh, Dorout. <laughs> what would you say it was? Dorhout? A donut. It's Logan Donut. Just forget about I like it. it. This is your new name. Martin County Sheriff's Office. Uh, he says, and it's true, no title could explain this case, but the details, well, it's best to just read on. Train versus vehicle versus house. A 38-year-old Bradford Whitesell of Port St. Lucie. That's down in yeah. your area. This is another fucking Florida Woo-hoo. dude. Told Martin County Sheriff's he couldn't find his car after leaving a Martin County bar this morning, so he stole one in a good faith effort to locate his own. Oh. He somehow ended up on the train tracks. That's when he claims the vehicle he stole suddenly stopped dead on the tracks as the train was coming. So he got out and ran. The train hit the car, catapulting catapulting it into a nearby home where the homeowners were sound asleep. Fortunately, nobody was injured, although a driverless car smashing through the side of your home clearly is going to waken oh, you up. Oh, jeez. By the way, Weitzel continued on to a fruit stand where he vandalized the business then tried to steal a forklift. Because <laughs> that would outrun the, the police end, that are pursuing him here shortly. Oh, yeah. In the end, he said he thought it was best to flag down the responding deputies to let them know he was still looking for his car. Oh, what? <laughs> you know, every time we hear one of these new stories, it just brings a whole new meaning to the word idiot. Uh, tell you what, the ID10 key is alive and well on this dude's keyboard, man. <laughs> Hey, and this next one, though, this is pretty cool, too. This comes to us from Heidi Overman, VR Game of Crimes fan group from Washburn County, Wisconsin, population 15,582. Salute. Salute. This comes from the Washburn County Scanner. (laughs) It's not so much the call, it's some of the comments that follow. 829 being dispatched to the city of Shell Lake for a report of a heavier set male individual intoxicated caller reports he appears to be masturbating in the middle of the street near Klopp's bar so apparently somebody started tagging this guy named Christopher he goes again I'm not in Shell Lake and then some lady named Jenny replies back well since it's only 15 degrees outside do you think there's shrinkage involved with the said act being done in the middle of the street Christopher can you be our on the scene reporter for this one (laughs) Uh, shrinkage got 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 a good sense of humor there Shrinkage, you got to watch the Seinfeld episode with George Costanza and Shrinkage. Oh, jeez. Okay, by the way, Steve, are you ready? Yes. Here we go. All right. This is it, you know. What year oh, was it? Yeah. I got I got to get some echoing stuff. We have we did I forgot to do this last time, but it's like, hey, you know what? So sue me. You know, we did we didn't do what year was it? <laughs> I uh, didn't hear a single complaint do, about it either. <laughs> not and, and actually shorten up the episode anyway. Yeah. So this comes to us from the Gazette in Montreal, Quebec, not Quebec. It's Quebec, Canada. Mm-hmm. And you, this comes on November 9th. You just got to tell me what year was okay. it. So let me just read you the quick little headlines. Italy's kidnap industry spreads across Europe. Headline, Rome. Europe's rich people are being forced to live with bodyguards and step up other safety measures as kidnappings for ransom, once just an Italian disease, spread to other countries. In Italy, where the newfound criminal industry is referred to as Kidnapping Inc., the number of kidnappings this year reached a record 63 yesterday when three... Three armed men seized Pietro Fiocchi, a, munis- a munitions factory owner and town official in Lecco, or Lecco. The men pushed him into a waiting car as he left work in the northern Italian town. Uh, they demanded $12 million payments for the Duke Massimiliano uh, Grazioli as he toured his estate near Rome. So they were getting a bunch of, money, bunch of money out of this. So more significant than the number of kidnappings in Italy is the fact that this crime has spread elsewhere. So Steve... This comes to us out of the Gazette, Montreal, Quebec, Canada. You have to tell me, was it November 9th, 1977, November 9th, 1967, 
or November 9th, 1957. It's got to be 77 because if they're asking for $12 million, that's a buttload of money. Right? Well, I guess so. I guess you get one right. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Boy, I'm kicking butt this year. Woo-hoo. You guys can cheer butt. for me now. You... Cheer for cheer for the Murph man. Cheer for Woo-hoo. the Murph man. Well, hey, cheer for this next episode too because we got coming up. This will no. I guarantee you, this will set the records for the most number of f bombs ever in one episode. Oh man, this is great. Tommy Cedric's coming on here, retired DE agent, one heck of an investigator, probably one of the best that uh, that's around or that was around. He's retired now, but the guy that they went after, this Paul Leroux, you you know what? If you can, uh, after you, you'll find the book on our website, right, Morgan. No, actually, we don't. We only put books on our website that are written by our guests. So, um, but I, I may put a link in there. Okay. Uh, it won't be in our book sections, but I'll put. But it's Hunting Larue by Elaine Shannon. She also wrote, like you said, uh, the one about Kiki Camarino as well, too. She, I mean, she's done a good job with these books. Yeah, she's very pro law enforcement, and she doesn't hold back, man. She does her research. She's a fantastic writer. But I don't want to spoil the, the story about Paul. But these guys went after this guy who is. He was a savant when it came to computer crimes, to uh, uh, cybersecurity, started out legally selling pharmaceuticals, made a a ton of money on that, but that wasn't enough. The greed factor kicked in. This guy was a true nerd, but he was a genius as well. And they just went out and somebody said, you can't touch this guy. Nobody can touch this guy. And they reached out and they touched him. Literally, Tommy said, hold my beer. And this is a guy, and it just wasn't pharmaceuticals. We're going to talk about mercenaries. Mm you know, murder for hire, um, nuclear stuff, arms sales to Iran. I mean, this dude, if, if there's a definition of dangerous in the dictionary, this guy's picture would be listed in it Yeah, because of the stuff he did. Even bringing methamphetamine out of North Korea. I mean, this has got it all. You guys are going to love this episode. Talk. Yeah, and that's why we said that's why that makes sense now. How why Kim Jong Un, you know, dropped those you know seventy five hundred pounds, man. He's been doing his own meth. <laughs> well, and, and and I tell you what, you'll see as as we get into the episode, we had a really hard time getting Tommy to come out of his shell and being open up and honest with us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if we had a beep button. <laughs> It was to be a continuous. It, it would beat. be one long beat for the whole episode, yeah. <laughs> but you're going to love Tom. He's he's out there. He's not bashful. I mean, he's out there doing the God God's work, and he's earning the money. You, you taxpayers in the United States, you're getting your money's worth when Tommy Cedric was on the job. So, and there's only one way to find out, and that's for me to ask you, Murph. Yeah. Are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the game of crime? Truly, everyone, get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Here comes Tommy Sendrick. Let's go. Well, we get we told you a little bit about him in the intro, and there's nothing like seeing him in person except it's kind of dark in his house right now. For a while there, we thought Tommy was in fucking witness protection, man. <laughs> still hiding, <laughs> still hiding from the bad guys and uh, Mr. LaRue. So hey man. Tommy, before we get started, Tommy Sendrick, D, former DEA, welcome to Game of Crimes. Hey, Woo-hoo. thanks. Welcome, Tommy. Appreciate Glad to have you on here, brother. Appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, well, we had to do this early because the message we got is that if we try and contact you usually after 2 p.m. any afternoon, you're out hunting. 
that's pretty accurate from pretty much September through about late January in, in Maryland. It goes, uh, the hunting season runs till the end of January, beginning of February. And, uh, I normally won't work past then. And I, you know, ties in with my no work Friday since I retired. So, <laughs> which was a, a continu- man who's got a plan, which was a, a continuation of Murph's plan when he was, you know, working no work Friday either. And we had all of those guys, right? I love the ones, hey, man, I love the ones member, uh, you always get those people who say, I always give 100% at work. You know, it's like, yeah, right. I've seen your 100% at work. 15% on a Monday, 12% on a Tuesday, 14% <laughs> on a Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had I had a great guy I worked with when I was in Baltimore. I, I kind of got banished up to Intel for a while when I got in trouble. And I'm sitting up there and he says, look, I know who you are. Don't mess up my good gig. And I was like, what's that mean? He goes, I go get coffee at nine. I come back, I move some papers. I go get lunch. I come back, I move some papers. I go get coffee again. Uh, he says, I come back and move some papers and go home. I don't need you messing this up. <laughs> you know, so. That's right. Well, to talk about how you got to that point and how you actually messed it up for him, because I know you did, <laughs> we got to start off like we do with everybody. Uh, so, Tommy, so what the hell possessed you to get into law enforcement? Um, I kind of always had this leanings toward law enforcement. Um, there were, there were. Was most of it because of your interaction with law enforcement as the youth? Well, th- there were, <laughs> there was some of that. Okay, and um, and it, and you know, I came from a family of we worked for an acronym to agencies. My both my mom and dad were NSAers. Um, you know, it was kind of just, as I said, it's kind of foretold. You kind of just follow in some shape, manner, or form in, in your parents' uh, footsteps a little bit. Um, you know, but I kind of started out as a cop. I kind of went that direction because I had uh, uh, paid attention and saw three, three, the homicide of three police officers that really had a profound effect on me. Uh, one was Marty Ward from Baltimore City, who was killed in an undercover operation. One was Trooper Ted Wolf, who was killed on the side of 95 uh, by a crew out of D.C. and uh, or person tied to a crew out of D.C. And then the other one was Kiki Camarena. And they had profound impacts on me and kind of um, pushed me in a direction. Now, I veered off here and there. I, you know, I walked on and played some college football or tried to play some college football. It wasn't very good. And then I... Uh, I went to professional wrestling school and, you know, spent a little time doing Wait that. Wait a minute. You, you held back on us during the pre-call. What do you mean? What was what was your stage name? The Flying Fundini or what was it? Uh, everybody always laughs. My, my, my heritage is Croatian, so they always go, you were going to be the Croatian sensation. Um, <laughs> oh, God. The crazy but, slob. Yeah, but the reality was I was going to, in and out of Texas, and I was at a school run by a guy named Gentleman Chris Adams. Uh, who's now deceased um, out of the sportatorium. And, um, you know, my, my whole gimmick I wanted to be, I wanted to be kind of this um, white trash uh, guy, you know, from Texas or down south and just kind of play that genre up. And, you know, that was kind of the gig I was doing. And, you know. Man, you'd have to change your accent because that's not a southern accent. No, it's not. It's not. But I loved it down there. I loved Texas. I loved hanging out down there. I've got, got, to, got to meet the Von Erics, got to meet, you know, Stone Cold Steve Austin actually was in the wrestling school. Stone Cold Steve Austin. He's got, he, is, he has done well for himself post-wrestling. Absolutely. He was in the wrestling 
wrestling school I was at at the time. He was uh, he was older than me and, you know, really on the verge of stardom at that time. And uh, so it was pretty cool. You got to see these guys you uh, that I had watched on TV. I'd grown up watching it. I loved it. I still love it. You know, I, I, I think it, I got to be honest with you. I think it's more real than any sport you watch at this point. Um, and it's definitely more real than U.S. politics. So <laughs> I'd rather watch that. But I will give him credit for one thing. Obviously, it's entertainment. But but these are athletes. Dwayne The Rock Johnson did professional wrestling. I mean, you've got people with serious athletic skills that were doing professional wrestling because even though some of it, you know, might be choreographed, these are still freaking moves. I mean, you're jumping off of ropes. You're doing these high-speed maneuvers. I mean, jumping over the top rope to hit a guy and land on a table. I mean, that you have to practice that a little bit. You do, and it, and it does hurt. And I'll, I'll tell you— I, I'll tell you when I when I was at the DEA Academy, they you know they ask you one of these things. They said, Do you, "Does anybody know how to fall?" Right? And I go, "I know how to fall." And they're like, "You know how to fall?" And you know you know how police they, they crouch you down and you learn how to tuck and fall backwards. I jumped up in the air and landed on my back, and the instructors were like, "What the shit is that?" <laughs> Who let this guy through the background? <laughs> the boy clearly has some brain damage. We yeah. need to reevaluate our. Criteria here. Hey, hey, I wanna... hey, anybody who knows me may agree with you just on that statement alone. Trust me. Oh, hey, let's go back a little bit too. Talk about your parents for a second because there was a time, and one of the things we were talking we have in common, I spent some time teaching out at the National Cryptologic School at NSA on behavior analysis, blah, blah, blah. But I ran into guys, that was the first time they were actually allowed to have business cards because the joke for so long was NSA stood for no such agency. So when your parents were growing up, did you know it was NSA? We knew it was NSA because where I grew up, everybody in my neighborhood worked for NSA. They were all transplants normally out of Pennsylvania. Um, they were all either at NSA, CIA, or NASA, or one of those places. Um, my dad never hid that he worked for NSA from us, but it was never openly— What was his cover story for everybody else? State Department. <laughs> that's everybody. everybody's cover story. Yeah, yeah when, he, when, when he traveled, that's what he traveled as State Department. Um, but you know, and, and my my dad was my dad was this, a really really high overachiever. You know, I, I think we chatted about this a little bit. I mean, valedictorian of a senior class in high school, uh, went to Pitt on an on a ROTC scholarship. My, my he comes from very meager beginnings. My I, I'm only the second generation born here in the United States. They came over from Croatia, uh, you know, World War Two ish time, um, a little bit before you know that kind of thing. Um, so my dad couldn't have gone to college without a scholarship, um, became Brigadier General of Arnold Air, uh, ended up uh, in the U.S. Air Force and was, uh, you know. Hey, go back to that for a second, because that, 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 is, a, that is a really high rank. Our, you called it ROTC, ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Corps. I went through ROTC in college. What was the, the, the rank he got? was in college, right? It was yes. the ROTC rank. But why was that? What was the significance of having that rank? He was like the nation. He was the head nationwide of this Arnold Air, um, Hap Arnold, and um, who was a legendary Air Force uh, serviceman. Um, and my dad just became the, the brigadier general and ran the ROTC nationwide uh, for, for that. Um, you Did know. you have to salute when you came in then? No, but my dad used to tell all my friends, you can call me by my first name, sir. 
<laughs> well, that kind of begs the question, what happened to you, Tommy? A lie. <laughs> why, why didn't you go to the three-letter route? I mean, why are you not a spook? You know, a spy, uh, doing, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I well, well, if you folks could see the picture right now, he does look like a spy. Like I said, because his lighting is terrible. All we see is kind of a face. It, it looks like one of those things on 60 Minutes when they're interviewing a deep cover. The yeah. only thing we're not doing is disguising his voice because we can't see him. I, yeah. I, I can move, but the, the problem is if I go downstairs, my dog may bark if the Amazon guys come. So you guys will be cutting this off quick. <laughs> I know, no, we, we, we know what you look like from the pre-call. By the way, do you know what it is? You know what the condition's called when you order so many packages? Packages from Amazon. You don't remember what you ordered? What? Primnesia. I. Uh, oh, jeez. That's really bad. I but, gotta get. But, a, I've <laughs> got to get a mute button on this thing. Maybe. There is, Steve. Right to your left. You can mute yourself anytime you want. <laughs> talking about. We're not talking about me. But back to back to our regularly scheduled podcast with Tommy. So why didn't you go down the spook route? Why didn't you go, uh, you know, uh, to CIA, go through the farm, you know, do a, go to NSA? I, I considered all that NS, you know, I considered going over to the CIA. Um, kind of the thing was, is when I came, when I came out of college, I kind of did, you know, I was like every other kid who comes out of college with a bachelor's degree, I don't know what the shit I wanted to do, really. You know, I, I, I got the degree because my mom and dad told me I had to. My dad had been deceased at that time. He died when I was 20. So I had to figure things out. My mom was back working full time at NSA. She was trying, you know, my mom was 42 when my dad died. So wow. she had to restart her life without him, which was a, a really monumental um, task. So she didn't. I, I don't want to say she didn't have time, but you know, I was 20 years, 22 years old. And she was like, you gotta, you gotta start doing, you gotta do something. So, you know, I went down to the, I tried to like do the, move out, get yeah, a job. Well, that was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was 22. It was basically like, you, you've got some time and then I'm, I'm either paying you, you're either paying rent here. Or you're getting out of my house and paying rent somewhere else. Um, so I ended up, uh, I, I started looking at various options. I looked at the military. I had, I had, I had taken the ASFAB and was looking at that route. And then I gave, kind of gave myself a, a window and I applied to three police departments. I applied to the Baltimore city police department because I had, that was, that's where my mom's family was originally from. I applied to the metropolitan police department in Washington, DC. And I applied to Metro Dade because everybody wants to go to Metro Dade and be Sunny Crockett. Be back. Sunny Crockett. Yeah. I mean, you talk, you got to remember brother. this is eighty nine ninety. you know, you want to be hey, Sonny Crockett. We got a quick rule too. You got to define every acronym. So you said ASVAB. If you don't know what it is, I remember what it is. Do you remember what it stood for? I can't remember the, uh, the exact. Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Batteries. So they, you would go in, you would join, because I had to do that. I got into the reserve so I could get into ROTC. So you had to take the ASVAB. So it's kind of a... It's kind of a voc it's a vocational aptitude battery. You know, what are you what are you good at? What are you doing? And based on those scores, that depends on what schools you get. So um, it sounds like uh, the army wasn't for you. The structure wasn't for you. I didn't know they. I didn't. I didn't know they had a Tommy Bahama category in that test there, Morgan. They did, and dude, I aced it. I maxed it out. <laughs> in fact, everything I'm wearing, everything I'm wearing today is Tommy Bahama. Oh jeez. Hey, well, just so you know, I paid for this T-shirt. It's not free today. I. It looks like it's free. But anyway, back to our regularly scheduled podcast. <laughs> you see the year on it, right? <laughs> no, what is it? 2010. That's a little dated. Have you washed it? But but I but I think everybody here is a bit dated, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. oh, that hurt. Okay. Anyway, 
this this interview now has come to a close with Tommy. Thank you. <laughs> that's, no. that's why we say we have a face for radio. Hey, you know what I mean, yeah. Tommy? We're, we're the ones that dish out the, the, the insults and the digs. You're supposed to take them. So anyway, oh, gotcha. but good. Anyway, but go back. So you thought, did you ever uh, get the paperwork for the CIA? Did you go through the application process at all? No, I, I started I started applying when I applied to the Metropolitan, when I applied to the police departments and the military, um, I got hired um, by Metropolitan Police Department. They were the first ones to, well, yeah, they were the first ones to call me. So, of course, you know, you take the job that's first offered to you. Um, I went into the academy class and... Hey, real quickly, you were in Maryland at the time, and that's MPD. So what was the residency restriction, or how close did you have a requirement that you had to be so close within uh, to the district? 25 miles. Um, Baltimore City required you to ha live in the city. Um, that's why um, they didn't take me, because when D.C. called them, they said, we would have hired him, but we can't hire him because he is, uh, he's not a Baltimore City resident. Well, DC you're not because you refused to move, right? Yeah, I wasn't moving quite yet. I mean, you know, it, 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 I had family that lived there still, but, you know, I was like, eh, let's see what else happens. And, you know, it was kind of funny. One of the funny stories with my background investigation with MPD was I, I you know, getting your background investigations done. You know how that is. You, you, you might get a good guy. You might get a bad guy. So I kept calling down there. This is, you know, got to remember, this is 1989. You know, there's no Internet. There's none of this shit. Right. So I called down there and I'll never forget I get Detective Goff. He was my um he was my background investigator because they were yelling on the phone who had Cindric, right? So Goff finds me, gets on the phone, he, he looks at my thing and he goes, So you've lived in the same house your entire life? I said, yes. He goes, everybody in your neighborhood knows you. I said, yes. He goes, I'll be right out. <laughs> <laughs> You've just made my life easy, pal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. Hey, but did it cause an issue, though? I mean, like you said, you were, were you, you said you were first or second generation in the U.S.? Second. Second. All right. So your dad was there. Did it cause any issues with you being, um, you know, your parents coming from Croatia? Did that affect your background at all? It was my grandparents and it didn't affect mine. Um, my dad's was always a little bit more when he first got hired at NSA. I remember them talking about it because um, uh, my my dad's family, you know, you got to remember this was the turnover where it wasn't Croatia, which it was Yugoslavia. So it was yeah. a communist country. Um, and my dad, my own, my grandfather used to tell everybody that they could not write home, meaning his mother, who was my great grandmother, um, because if she did, it could hurt my dad's chances of getting into NSA or cause him problems on his background investigation. You know, I laugh now, but this is the old days when they probably did check our mail, you know, and if you don't think the federal government did that, you know, just watch what they're doing now to us. So, I mean, I'm sure they were checking mail back then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, like I said, you know, a It wasn't a big deal, but my dad was military, but we lived in Iran. So I actually had to answer some questions about sure. Iran on my security clearance, you know, but so anyway, so you, you get on MPD, the Metropolitan Police Department. Um, what year was that? You said was 1990, that 80, 1990. Yeah. How I, long was your academy? Uh, 16 weeks. Did you like the academy? Well, I'll tell you. So the academy was an interesting place because it was, you had, you know, you get 
the complete wide range of people when you go into a police department. And we had some people that had horrible educations and couldn't spell and write a complete sentence. And I mean, literally, we had spelling tests like spell handcuffs, spell arrest, you know, so people could write basic wow. reports at sometimes. Um, I was, I was completely bored and there were a couple instructors who took pity on me and would pull me out of class and let me go work out and stuff or let me go run with them. Um, when it came to some of those classes, DC code, when you learn a DC law, that was fine. That was, you know, everybody has to do that. But some of, some of the silly inane stuff was just, you know, I, I, I got, I was, I was luckily a couple instructors took some pity on me and realized that I was just kind of falling asleep in class at that point. How but, big was your class? Uh, 25 people, 27. That people. doesn't seem like a lot for MPD. Well, it's small. It, it, here's the thing. It, back then, it was just trying to get people through. And so as soon as you had enough to run a class, they were running 25 people in a class, if I remember correctly, and they were running two shifts so you want they, to get you ready for shift work. So what you would do is you'd work 7 to 3 one week, and then the next week you'd work 3 to 11. So you'd come in and go 3 to 11 to the class. And so they were always running multiple classes. Classes were running all the time there to try and catch up because D.C., you know, people forget D.C. is not what D.C. is today. This was a city that had 500 murders a year. I was going to say the homicide rate was just it was one of the most dangerous cities in the U.S. Yeah, it had the highest homicide rate at the time. This is the the the, you know, towards the end of the um, uh uh, Rafael Edmonds, Michael Gray, Michael Gray, Murder Incorporated area there. Um, you know, it, it was, but it was a violent, violent place. Um, but when you're, you know, and I, I can't, you know, this sounds crazy, but when you're a 22 year old kid full of testosterone and want to just run, run like bat out of hell, it's the greatest job in the world. You know, you're just, you're, you're, you know, you're running down drug dealers, you're responding to armed robberies, you're responding to a man with a knife, gun, you know, shooting. Well, the 911 operators always answered 911, who shot who, you know. <laughs> it, 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 for me, it was, it, it was just, it was, it, when I got there and got on the streets, it was like my hand fit in a glove. I, I just belonged there. Well, it was that, that kind of job at that time was designed for a younger person who was, hadn't been, had all of those years, had seen all of those things. I mean, you were fresh, you were ready to go burn a blue streak through the town. So well, they, needed, they needed somebody that knew how to take a fall. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and like, this was a time too, we didn't even have the, the equipment. I mean, if two of you went on the street, only one of you got a radio and they'd say, don't leave your partner. Um, you know, if six of you went on a street, maybe two guys had a radio in your group. And so, and we used, I mean, the violence was so bad. We had something called the power shift and we'd work from seven at night till three in the morning. And they would put like, you know, five of the most aggressive guys together and they just put you in an area and you'd be crime suppression. And that's all you did. And what was most of the crime fueled by drugs. during those Drugs, drugs. It I was, mean, it was the heroin, crack, crack, cocaine. It was the crack cocaine era, but the area I worked also had, uh, which was Potomac Gardens, had a good amount of heroin too. One side of the of the projects was cocaine and crack cocaine. The other side was um, heroin and speedballs. You know, cocaine mixed with heroin. 
was it all gang controlled? Nah, neighborhood control. DC is a different <laughs> kind of thing. It's all little local, local no neighborhood crews. Um, if if you would have been a gang leader and walked into those areas, the 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 DC boys would have been like, "Get the hell out of here! You ain't from here." I mean, you know, I, I the DC is a unique area, and it was a fun place to work. Well, this is this is during the Marion Barry days, also, wasn't it? When he was the mayor. He was not the mayor then. It was right after he got caught smoking crack in the hotel room, not On long the after. On the FBI sting operation. We all, we all remember seeing the. And there's another guy who figured out a way to resurrect his career, you know, and come back again. Look, Washington, D.C. is a place, if anybody hasn't figured it out, that likes to forgive people who make mistakes. Just look at all our, look at all our presidents and everybody else. Um, Mayor Barry was no different. And Mayor Barry was a brilliant politician. He made sure that public works, police, and teachers always got raises. That was his goal. And that's how he stayed in power so long. He was he was masterful at that. And he he always was he was always good to the police. I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. Like you hear the old timers talk about it. They're like, he's a mess, but we keep getting raises. But he's our <laughs> mess and he, you know, he pays us. Hey, going back, is this so the reason I was asking that too, is this where you first started thinking about, you know, hey, DEA or drugs and stuff based upon the amount of dope you're running into, or did that register with you at all during that time? No, I, I, I always knew I wanted to go to DEA as a Why? federal. Drugs just fit me. And, and I'll be honest with you. I was heavily, heavily influenced by. Um, oh my God. I thought you were about to say I was heavily, heavily into drugs. No. I was going to wait a minute. Okay. I, was I, was, I was heavily influenced by the whole, um, uh, Sonny Crockett, Miami vice thing. I mean, it, it was just such a, really cool looking lifestyle, right? Like it looked exciting. It looked, you know, and I was like, man, I, you know, I want to live an exciting life. I mean, when I was in high school, one of my teachers gave me the book, The Born Identity. I hated school. He gave me The Born Identity. I tore through that. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to live an exciting oh, life. Oh, the original Robert Ludlum, I think, you know, series. Yeah. Yep. The, those, I mean, those are really interesting, too, because it, it, it was such a fascination to live that kind of lifestyle. You're the secret agent hopping from continent to continent, except later on, we'll talk about it. It didn't exactly work that way. So, you know, the, the speedboats and the Hugo Boss, when we had Jay, uh, Jay Dobbins on a couple episodes ago when, when this one comes out, that's what he thought. He said, I'm going to be in these Hugo Boss suits like, you know, Don Johnson, you know, driving Ferraris. Instead, he's in a, you know, a tank top, you know, with Cut, cut off camouflage pants and driving a piece of shit Monte Carlo. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My my first my first my first car in New Jersey, a uh, Delta eighty eight, where the air conditioner didn't work, and I had to clean the chicken wings out from a supervisor <laughs> who had the car before me and left them under the seat. I oh, mean, nasty, yeah, nasty. That, that's how glorious it was. That when you were doing surveillance, you went and looked for a tree so you could sit under the tree because they weren't going to pay to have the car fixed to get you air conditioning. Well, before we hop ahead too far, so let's talk about that. So you said because of the Miami Vice and the Don Johnson, you wanted to go DEA. So how long were you on MPD before that bug hit you and you applied? Well, I, I was on MPD for two and a half years, and then I moved over into my hometown, Laurel, Maryland, and I became a police officer there. And I spent most of my time in working narcotics there and working undercover. Why'd you move? Well, so Sharon Pratt Kelly, who was the mayor at the time, um, was giving all the police officers a 10% cut in pay. You and, mean in D.C.? Yes. And Dang. so I said, I said, oh, I'm not doing this. This doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and so one of my buddies, uh, his brother was a lieutenant out there at Laurel. It was a smaller department, but I was like, oh, I'll, I'll give it a shot for a while. 
And I went out there and I, I got to work narcotics most, almost the entire time. And, um, you know, why, I got did, to, why did you get to work narcotics? I mean, was it just they needed somebody or that was you volunteered for it? How'd you end up in that? Well, they needed somebody. Um, they also needed somebody that had experience. And coming from D.C., you get a lot of experience fast. I mean, there was I mean, I had as a, as a uniformed patrolman walking a footbeat. I handled rapes. I handled murders. I handled armed robberies, you know, drug dealing. And you name it from to a basic theft to finding a stolen car to you name it. You handled it. So you needed to have some sort of experience. I got more experience there in two and a half years um, than probably a lot of guys well, at that some, time some were getting their career. Get 20 years. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Hey, when, so, you, when you left D.C. because of the pay cut, did a lot of other officers leave as well? You know, as I remember, a few others followed, went to different places, like, you know, went out to Fairfax or, you know, guys who could. Um, the older ones, you know, you're, you're kind of vested. It's kind of hard mm -hmm. to leave, right? So, yeah. you know... The older ones never would. And, and, you know, I also think it was a different time. Guys, guys, um, police department hop all the time now, right? They'll jump from four or five departments. You know, that was not normal back then. Me leaving D.C. was a big deal, really, to be honest with you, because people were like, you're leaving. Why are you leaving? You know, yeah, but a 10% pay cut, that's a massive cut. Well, now, was your pay at the time, was it good and 90% would have been 90% of a good salary? Or was it a shit salary and you couldn't just take 90% of a shit salary? I made $25,108 when I hit the streets of D.C. Oh, no, I'm sorry. 25163 I got a pay raise when I got on the streets. 108 was when I got uh, when I was in the academy. And it did, I think I... Oh, you got a $55 pay raise. Woohoo! Yeah, and I think then, I think then after a year, I went to 26, if I remember correctly, it was like 26,363. But where you made your money was overtime. Overtime, because, yeah. Because D.C. was a, a federal district, so you had, to, you had to paper your cases the next morning. It was just, you had to be there the next morning. So you ratcheted up overtime and comp time like there was, it, there was no tomorrow. And once you learned how to play the system and just keep ratcheting it up. That's what we did. You know, and yeah. you learn the game. Oh, it, those are my cuffs on the suspect. Put me on the cans, which was the notice for court. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what guys would do. They go, I got your, I got, I got the cuffs on him, Tommy. I got you. You, you take care of the paperwork. I'll transport him. No problem. Yeah, lucky you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But so, so when you went to, how big, so give us some context where everybody knows where DC is. Give an idea. Where is Laurel, Maryland? How close is that to DC? And, and what was the population of uh, Laurel compared to DC? Oh, well, <laughs> I can't remember the population of DC at the time, but Laurel had a population of 25,000 people, I think at that time. So your department of about what, 40 people maybe? Uh, I think we were at 50 at that time. 50? Yeah. yeah. And then I started working. I, I, the good thing was when I got there, um, I got to work with a lot of the task forces. I worked with the DEA task force out of Baltimore, the Maryland task force that had the Maryland State Police and some FBI agents in it. I worked with the FBI Violent Crime Task Force because Laurel Laurel was still doing you know real undercover. We worked out of a an offsite. You know, people really didn't know you. You drew you drove um, unmarked cars. You didn't come to the station unless you had to. Um, and if you came to the station, everybody made sure like you came in back doors. I mean. It was, they, they tried to do it the right way uh, as much as you could, right? right. Where's Laurel in relation to D.C.? 
It is north of D.C., about 30 miles, 35 miles. So you're kind of in that corridor between D.C. and Baltimore. So you've got a lot of crime, a lot of stuff going up and down the pipeline in 95 and stuff, right? Yeah, it's a lot of shit. It's a lot of shit. I mean, it really is. It's a giant amount of shit between Baltimore and Washington. Oh, my God. Well, having driven that, yes, it is. Yeah. Are you in Montgomery County or PG County? Or? That, that was considered Prince George's County, but Laurel ran multiple counties. It ran Howard County, part of Howard County, part of Montgomery County. PG County was the bulk of it. And Howard PG. Yeah, Howard PG. And Montgomery. Yeah, Howard, Howard PG, Montgomery. Oh, and Anne Arundel. Anne Arundel County. Okay. So how the hell did you... Wow. So, so did you have to... I mean, how the hell did that work? You got a city that's covering four to five counties? No, you had city limits, but Laurel extended beyond... The, there's Laurel City, which was inside this, this little area. And then as you expanded out, there was Laurel... Anne Arundel County, Laurel, Howard County, Laurel, PG County. You know, it's kind of like Alexandria and Arlington. I mean, you get that whole area down there where it kind of bleeds over, you know. Yeah. Little cities within cities. So so how long were you on Laurel? About two and a half years. And, um, you know. I'm seeing a pattern here. So is that is that the amount of time you could take it or is that about the amount of time they could take you? I think a little of both. I think a little, I think a little of both. I think a little of both. And, um so I, uh, I kind of, I, I applied, I guess, um, I was working with a guy in, in Laurel and his father was, his father-in-law was the head of forensics for DEA and FBI and worked out of, you know, over a, out of 600, 700 army Navy drive. And he said, you, you don't belong here. You should go talk to my father-in-law. You should go to DEA. I said, that's where I want to go. I said, but uh, you know, they keep, you know, and I had talked years ago, I had talked to Priscilla Lewis, who was, who was a recruiter. And she said, ah, you need to go get more experience. And then, you know, when you're told that you kind of get into a routine and you're just like, ah, should I call again? Should I not? And then um, I went and saw him. He said, look, there's going to be a big hiring thing coming up for DEA. He said, you should apply. And I said, okay. So I wrote this nice thank you note to him after going down and spending the afternoon with him, which turned out to be the greatest thing that I probably ever did, that thank you note. Um, and, and this was pre-email. This was like a real thank you note. You actually had to use pen and paper and an envelope, right? Yes. I, I Actually, I remember I sat down and typed it on an electric um, typewriter. And I, you know, you type your name and then you sign your name and put it in the envelope and you send it to him at 600, 700 Army Navy Drive. And I sent it down there. And, and, you've, and you've already been through the spelling class at Metro PD. So, man, you're on top of the you world right now. You can spell arrest and police officer. You were good. I was good. And then, um, and then uh, um, I, I went and got the old SF-171s that you had to fill out, right? And uh, yeah, you remember that. Special mm. Form 171. Oh, my gosh. I think it's Standard Form 171. Standard Form. Well, that too. SF-86, SF-85P, yeah. you know, blah, blah, blah. So I filled that out, and I, I you know, they tell you type it. So, you know, the, again, this isn't a computer. There is no computer. So you're sticking it in, and you're rolling it, and you're typing it. Now, now on your typewriter, did you have the newer version that actually had the backspace feature with the erasure tape so you could correct your mistakes? Never fucking worked. Never fucking worked. I must have typed that SF-171 like seven fucking times. I'll never forget. It drove me crazy. I did the whiteout. You know, you had the whiteout and you're painting it and you're trying to make it work. So um, so I applied um, in March. I'll never forget March of 95. March of 95. I applied. 
Um, they started doing my background in August of 95. So real quickly for the folks listening, when we talk about standard forms and stuff, they're, the government's love is war, but the SF-171 is the application for federal employment. So mm -hmm. that is a whole background thing. And then if you get a security clearance, I, I, did you guys have to fill out an SF-86? Oh, yeah. Yeah, but not until you got through to the 171. They brought you back down, and okay. then you had to fill out all the other forms like under their supervision of making sure you didn't fuck them up. Steve, do you remember how many pages your SF-86 was? Uh, I want to say 13. Oh, but you it, lucky you know, dog. Depending on how many prior residences you had and family members and out-of-the-country out travel and all that kind of stuff. Mine is 36 pages. Holy shit. Oh, my gosh. Well, I had to explain a lot of shit. Lived in Iran. My dad was military, so we moved all over the place. When you're going back and trying to figure out, I had a different teacher I had a teacher for kindergarten, first and second grade, a different teacher for third grade, a different teacher for fourth grade, a different two different teachers for fifth grade. What's that say then, about you? Damn. Well, it's my dad. It's not me. You know, <laughs> I've been kicked out of better places. But anyway, back to our uh, regularly scheduled <laughs> podcast here with you. So you're filling all this stuff out. You're, you're typing the SF-171 for the seventh time. So. Yeah. So so I get it done and I, I turn everything in and I, in March of 95 and I get a call that they're going to start on my background in August of 95. And I get called back down to I get called to the Washington Field Division. Now, is it a wet dream for the investigator, too, because you basically lived in the same house all your life? You lived in the same area all your life? Well, I, I would guess so, because that was back. I would because that's when the agents actually did the background investigations of the guys. There was no OPM investigator like it went to that field division, and which then, is the Office of Personnel and Management, which is the great place that got uh, hacked and all of our stuff ended up in China and all the SF-86s are now in China. Correct. Yep. And um, so so when you go back down there and the DEA agents are doing it, you know, very few offices had a dedicated, you know, group of agents that did that. You know, they didn't have the manpower to do that or a, um, or a boss, you know, most of the bosses were just like, ah, see if he's decent getting through or if he's not don't get him through you does know? he have a heartbeat is he breathing good yeah. you're qualified let's go and and at that time you got to remember so this is 95 end of 90 you know middle of 95 going into 96 dea hadn't hired in forever okay that what they were like doing maybe what one class a year murph i mean yeah it was really slow it was really slow and you know, like I, when I got, when I went through the background um, investigation, so, you know, I, I got lucky, you know, my wife's, my wife's uncle was a DEA agent. Um, so I knew a lot of different names of people and different things like that. I had worked on the task forces in Baltimore and DC. So when I go to do my background investigation, um, I know all three people basically on my background investigation. Not that I interacted with them every day, but I knew who they were. They knew who I was, not that we were friends or anything like that. So it just made the process easy. And I'll never forget, like, one time I go down there and I get um. I had taken the polygraph, and the polygraph it was a shit show back then, right? Like, it was three <laughs> hours of hell. It was like getting a proctology exam. And they oh, also geez. want to screw with you and mess with your mind and come in and say, we got an issue with one of these questions. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it, well, I was lucky at Laurel. My former partner was uh, a CIA police officer, right? And he starts going, he goes, hey, look, just so you're ahead of the ball game on this, they're going to fuck with you about things. He goes... Don't fucking admit to anything. Fuck them. Make them do the work. 
admit nothing, deny everything, yeah. make counter accusations. Right. So, so you know, you're getting, you're going through that. It's just a giant shit show. And but I get through it all, and I never forget. Like I was, I had my background. My uh, what do they call it? What's a neutral response on the uh, uh, on the polygraph? I've never had to take one, thank the good Lord. Yeah, there, there's oh, a you lucky dog. I, I'm I trying know. to think of what it is. I think it's like no reaction or something. Inconclusive, or no. inconclusive. Incl inconclusive, I think they call it. So I, mine came out inconclusive. Like during the whole uh, whole polygraph, they were like, yeah, I'm going to have to send this off to have it reviewed because you're coming up inconclusive. And I'm Did they like, accuse you of countermeasures like oh, taking yeah. pills? Yeah. Do you know meditation? <laughs> you know? Did you take pills? You yeah. know, are you... Yeah, no, I'm telling you the truth, you know, and, and, and there, you know, there's all these little quips in there. Like the guy goes, did you ever cheat on a test? And I go, yeah, I did. I cheated in high school. I had, didn't the Shakespeare quote we had to cop memorize and put down there. He goes, I'm really disappointed in you. I was like, well, next time I got to learn Shakespeare, it. I'll call you. Yeah, I mean, you'll get over it. Yeah, fuck you. You know, <laughs> these guys are such dickheads. You know who you remind me of right now with that statement? Do you ever watch Hill Street Blues? Yeah. Remember Detective Dennis Sipowitz? Uh, oh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, uh, yeah. yeah, he was, uh, no, that was New, uh, New, that was not Hill Street Blues. That was the New York, uh, the other one. Hill Street Blues was with uh, the former New York. No, 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 no. Sip, Sipowitz was on Hill Street Blues. Nah. You don't think so? Nah. Hey, we're going to, through the magic of Al Gore's amazing internet, we'll look it up. But the reason I was saying that, so... What happened was is that he he walks in one time. They've got a suspect in an interrogation room. And uh, so he's saying, I want to talk to a lawyer. I want to talk to a lawyer. Now, this is stuff you could do back then. We probably couldn't do today. So he goes, OK, OK, you know, I'll, I'll take care of it. So what he did was he put on glasses. He brought in a, uh, uh, a briefcase and stuff. And all he said was, I hear you want to talk. And so the guy starts telling him everything. And then he finds out he's a cop. Well, he goes out and this, the, 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 the district attorney's going, well, you know, I'm not really comfortable with you doing this. And I'm not really comfortable with you doing that. He goes, Hey, you got a card? He goes, yeah. He says, when your comfort becomes my concern, I'll call you. Yeah. And then he walked off. Well, you know, it's funny. Like you say that, but when I was in New Jersey, one of the funny things we did one time, we, you know, you have to have to wave. I was in New Jersey. So we locked up a guy in New York and we would sit there and go, did he wave his right to, to being extradited from New York to New Jersey? And what we used to tell the guys is when we locked them up, was we'd say, wave to New York. And so you go to court and they'd say, did he wave his right? Did he wave in, for, in New York? And you go, yeah, he waved to New York. He said fucking goodbye. <laughs> fuck him. Oh, so you know what? <laughs> Lawyers are probably cringing right now, but fuck them too. So yeah. there you go. There you go. we're both right. We're both right. Uh, but it was uh, Dennis Franz actually was on Hill Street Blues, but he not he did not play Sipowitz on that one. Right. He did it on NYPD Blue. That's You're right. right. Yeah. 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 You're thinking yeah. of Mick Belker. On, on oh, uh, Hill Street I, Blues. You know, yeah. like a dog. Yeah. I yeah. always remember on Hill Street Blues, I remember... Um, uh, the Hill cocaine sniffing turkey. I, I, that's the one I remember. I always remember Hill and Renko because um, the the black guy who played Bobby Hill was a point guard for John Wood, Wood, oh, yeah, Wooden yeah. at UCLA. I always remember that. Well, I wow. just love, you know, and you had Sergeant Esterhouse, you know, hey, let's roll and let's be careful out there. That let's was, I be mean, careful you know how there. many PD started saying that in their roll call after yeah. that? Life yeah. imitates art, you know? Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. so, yeah, so it was, uh, you know, I got through the polygraph and, and you know, I got, I was, I was down at, at the Washington Field Division. I can't remember the black background investigator's name. And he goes, 
man, we got to get this guy in the next class. I don't know what's happening here, but somebody over at headquarters wants this guy in the next fucking class. And I started, I was just like, there's the guy from the thank you note, the thank you note paid dividends. And I ended, and I ended up getting, um, an offer, uh, in October of 95 to enter BA 102 in January of 1996. So from flash to bang, from the time you applied until the time you got in, how long of a time frame was that? Six months. Oh, Wait a minute. Three, three, I'm sorry, nine months, nine months, because I, I applied in March. And, well, no, March, and I got basically hired in October and was in the class in, in January. Wow. That's still what? fast. Murph, what did you have, 19 years to, to, to took you to get on? <laughs> it was two years. It was a solid two years. Hey, but uh, you forgot to tell us something about the uh, when you were doing your polygraph. Didn't you have a story for him about a German shepherd or something like that? Oh, yeah. So, so it, Do we want to hear this story? I, mean... <laughs> I don't know. Do we? <laughs> so during the polygraph, you know, the, these jack-offs. No secrets here. No yeah, secrets. These jack-offs doing the polygraph always like to fuck with you and go, ah, you know, is there any you know, unnatural sex acts? You know, is they're doing the interview or anything like that before they get to the yes or no questions. And I said, yeah, sometimes I like to give my, my German shepherd a reach around, but I said, but any, but any man who knows you have, who has a German shepherd know that's, knows that's necessary. And there was a lady who was observing in there, another agent, and she falls out fucking laughing. And, and the guy's looking at her, the guy doing the polygraph, and, and she's like, my husband's a canine guy. I get it. Because you know? <laughs> it's a joke, you know? And it was just funny. And I, you know, but, but here was the thing. My thing was, was I liked my job. So I was just like, whatever, you know? If you hire me, you hire me. If you don't hire me, you and don't you hire me. And you folks can see now the whole, the way this career is going to go because Tommy Sendrick is like Ricky Gervais on, you know, the Golden Globes. I don't care. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> By the way, I was just finishing the last thing of Afterlife with Ricky Gervais. Watch it. It's a great show. <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on episode two now of season three. So, yeah. yeah. It, but, you know, he only does show with three seasons. The Office, three seasons. A yep. couple of the other thing he did, three seasons. So He's the fucking bestie. So I love the irreverency. And that's why, you know, you get to some of these things. It's just like, fuck you. Get a sense of humor. You know what I mean? Like, quit taking, you know, like, I, I, I just find it funny when all these guys in charge take themselves so seriously. Oh, you know? uh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I, yeah. Mr. Warmth, you and Don Rickles, you know. Yeah. <laughs> get over it. <laughs> get over it. So, hey, when you went to BA 102, uh, so you're going kind of during the cold part. Was that at Quantico? Or yes. where were you at? I was, okay. at, I was at Quantico. Um, we, we were on different hallways, but we were mixed with the FBI at that time. It was so funny because, you know, we're in our black pant, our black BDUs and our gray shirts and the FBI, it's, you know, they're in their, their khakis and their blue shirts. And it's like a college campus for them. I mean, you're just fucking like, you lucky bastards. Um, um, you know, we're, you know, if, if somebody walks down the hallway, you got to grab the fucking uh, wall and things like that. I got lucky. Um, I don't know if you guys Wait know. Wait a minute. Who had to grab the wall? You did or oh, the yeah, FBI guys did? Oh, yeah, we had to grab the wall, you know, if if like a, if one of the instructors came through. And you have to say, good morning, sir. Good afternoon, sir. Whatever, you know. And if you didn't, they, they, they'd give you shit. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you might end up, you might end up running. You might end up getting fucking brought down to, brought down and fucking chastised in front of everybody. You know, it just depended. But I had the greatest class counselor fucking ever. 
when I was at Quantico, and it was Tommy Golden. I don't know if any of you know Tommy. <laughs> he was, we were partners in Miami. Tommy was the greatest guy in the world. Have, yeah, I mean, to, to have him as a class counselor when, like, everybody is, like, taking this shit, like, it's life and death. And Tommy Tommy comes up, and he's got – he picked his group, and I was in his group. We're throwing the football in the hallway. We're relaxing. We're talking shit. He goes, hey, 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 I'm Mr. Golden when we're in front of everybody, but I'm Tommy when it's just us. Yeah. You know, yeah. and he was just – he was the <laughs> best, and he made it – he made it a pleasurable experience. And the good thing is, is I still keep in touch with him. He lives out in West Virginia now. Um, you know, I try and stop by if I can. Um, I've done it a couple times on my way out to see my uncle out in Western PA. I stopped by and see him because Tommy Golden just – he made he made that time very decent to deal with when you could have a lot of, a lot of dickheads. And, and our class council. Our class coordinator was Steve Griswold, who was another one of the all-time greats, if you know Steve. I mean, Steve. Oh, yeah. He, he was in Miami also. He took down Noriega, Manuel yeah, Noriega. Yeah. Steve was, Steve was one of the all-time greats, just a good fucking guy. Um, if you, you know, he didn't, he didn't take it all so serious where, like, it was life and death every day. If you fucked up, he'd call you in. I, I remember we were doing CS training, and I was just, like, not taking any of it very seriously. And So CS? Confidential source. And I wasn't taking... Because CS is also CS gas. I, You know, there's CS training where they put you in a gas house and make you puke and choke. Yeah, I wasn't taking it very seriously. And, you know, I was kind of... And, and, and they all knew I had been on task forces and had done a lot of DEA work. And I testified in federal court at that time. And I'll never forget, Steve Griswold calls me and he goes, Hey, look, kid. He goes, play the game. You got to get through this. You got to do it. I can't have you fucking acting like an asshole in front of the other people. You you got to do what you're supposed to do. And I was like, okay, gotcha. Gotcha. Check. Copy. You know, it's it's always great to get people who've got such a, a different perspective. I, I ran into an EOD guy one time, and you'll see some of these things on the internet. But, uh, you know, same thing. I said, because he asked him, he said, you know, you're dealing with explosives. Yeah, how do you handle that? He says, very simple. It says, either I'm right or it's not my problem anymore, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, and, and down there at the time, like, I, we had great, we had some great instructors in the PT realm. We had, you know, Frank Drew, Kenny Danino, um, you know, old time New Yorkers, and, and then Brad Worrell, who was one of the most laid back guys, um, you know, it, 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 we had we had a decent crew and, you know, we had so, we had some good instructors there. Ed Hendry, who did the law teaching, who was who was always like, we'll be done in 20 minutes. You'll be off to lunch. And he could do his thing so fast and get you to remember it and move you on. Um, you know, yeah, you and, know, what? And I got I got to correct something here because I said Grizz was uh, on the Norio case. He was. And that was Steve Greeley. Oh, Sorry, Greeley. Grizz. Yeah. Steve Grizz. Hey, but you know, we normally make you, the one term I didn't have you define, but I, we have to put it in context. So you said PT. Now, most people might think that's physical training, but at DEA, that could also mean party time. So was it party time or physical training? Depends no, on it time was, of day. Yeah. Well, <laughs> at, at the academy, it was physical training. I mean, yeah. It, yeah. I, I mean, so it, lots of push ups, lots of sit ups, you know, lots of running, you know, the normal stuff. And then, you know, really, I think the thing at the academy that DEA always did better than anybody else was firearms. Um, they were really good. And and yeah. you might remember this guy, Steve or Murph. Um, 
I had the great Brian Avery as my instructor. Oh, yeah. My, we my raised this together in Miami also. Yeah, he was my bay instructor at um, – at the uh, at firearms, and you know, Brian had been a Prince George's County police officer. Um, it's kind of funny, I was bouncing at a bar in Laurel when he came in one night as a PG County police officer. So I knew some stories about Brian, he used to give me shit all the time. I said, I remember you when you came in, and, <laughs> and, and you know, and he said, You don't tell a fucking word, yeah, you don't, tell. Yeah. And, and we would laugh, but he was a great instructor because you know, firearms can be a very tense thing for some people. Everybody in our bay could shoot, and Brian was just, he was a guy who kept it loose. He kept you relaxed. Um, he was a super great guy. His brother Mark over at um, TVOC when we would do the driving, another great guy, you know, and Dave. TVOC? Yeah. Uh, tactical, tactical Vehicle, vehicle op op yeah. Operations Course, yeah. Yeah. Hey, but but um, so something else, Murph, tell him about the guy in your class, uh, uh, the one that checked out one day because he didn't know about firearms. Oh, man, we had this guy. He comes in. He's the biggest strapping guy. He is in phenomenal shape, looks like a bodybuilder, good-looking, full head of hair, you know, and, and a chemist by uh, education. Dear God. Taking the first couple. Exactly. Takes the first couple. He's acing everything. I mean, he is squared away. So then we hit the range. We would have been in the academy maybe a week, two weeks. We, we come to class one day, and his shit's gone. It's like, hey, what happened? Whatever it's not. I can't remember his name now. You know, and of course, they don't tell you until you get to know everybody a little bit. And then it's like, what really happened? He's like, one of the counselors said, the dude didn't know that we carried guns in DEA. He was freaked out by carrying a weapon. He, he oh, refused dear, to carry a gun. Dear God. <laughs> dear God. So, like, like so what do you remember, think? What do you think? You, we're fucking drug counselors? Well, and if you remember, when you went through your, your interview, one of the questions they ask you, do you know you will have to carry a, one, a weapon and may yeah. be required to use it in the line of duty? That's where that came from. Oh, my God. All, all, all the dumb questions come from somewhere, right? Like you would think people yep. would there's a reason. There's a reason that there are things called precedents in court and everything else. Somebody. That's why there's instructions on your charcoal lighter that says, do not stick your face in the charcoal lighter while lighting it. Yeah. Somebody <laughs> did that, and some attorney had to write a warning for it. Yeah, oh, I, I tell you, I—, I, I I liked the academy, though. I had fun there. I mean, we ha I'll never forget, we had an ethics class, and I won't use her name. She was an instructor there, and she was the sexiest woman you'd ever seen, right? And she's giving the ethics class, and she'd sit, and she, I think she, she had some Latin flavor, right? She, she was, I think she was Colombian uh, by, by descent, and she would sit there and go, come the mama, baby. Like, she would talk about the undercover things, and, and like, like I'm, guys are, like, climbing over their chairs because she's the sexiest <laughs> woman on the face of the earth, and she's Teaching fucking ethics, right? Uh, We're like, what the fuck? Yeah, but you guys all paid attention, didn't you? Oh, we all paid attention, man. I, 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 she was gorgeous. Gorgeous. You know, There's a Steve, method to the madness. Steve, you'll appreciate this, too, because have you ever been to the International Association of Chiefs of Police Conference, Tommy? I have. I have. So, you know, there's like when before COVID, but there's like probably, what, 15,000 people there and everybody does everything to get people to their booths. Well, this one company got the Carolina Panther cheerleaders to be at their oh, booth. Wow. And to this day, you talk to people, what they remember is the Carolina Panthers. You know how many people remember whose booth it was? None. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> None. Zero. Yep. Yep. So what we've established, Tommy, is like the Carolina Panther cheerleaders. You don't have any recollection about going through the DEA Academy, but you certainly remember the ethics class. I remember the ethics class well.
And and did you learn the lessons from the ethics class, or the only thing you remember is attending the ethics class? I remember attending the ethics class. I remember like everybody. It was our first. I'll, I'll tell you this. I thought it was. I, I'm gonna. You guys are gonna get. Somebody's gonna get pissed at me from DEA, but they're giving the ethics class, and I thought it was such fucking bullshit, right? Because they're sitting there going, you know, it's. You can't take a free cup of coffee if you go to 7-Eleven. You know, if, a, if an informant brings you a teddy bear, you know, you've got to tell him, no, you can't take it, all this shit. And I was like, no, nah, that's not how you handle it. And I would sit there in the class. I, I, I'd have discussions about this. I said, that's not how you handle it. The informant gives you a teddy bear. You keep, it in your, you keep it in your fucking car. And then when you go do a search warrant and there's some little kid there, you give them the teddy bear. You, you, don't, you don't demean people. You don't do that. I, I just never believed in that. Um, that was another yank up by Steve Griswold to like, hey, hey, dickhead, what you do on the street, you know, is different. <laughs> just than, nod is, your head yeah, and get yeah, through the it, damn academy. Exactly. Steve was just like, quit being a dickhead. You know, you know, who, was, you know who this reminds me of? Me. <laughs> I would do the same thing during the academy and the State Patrol Academy. Well, what if they did this? And what if they did that? Well, what about this? And what about that? And I finally had one of them. I finally had one guy come up to me and says, look, dude. This academy is long enough as it is. Let's just get through 16 weeks. Exactly. You know, exactly. We're all waiting to go on break, and you're asking more questions. Like, no, no, no. I was smart enough guy? never to ask questions right before lunch break or before the end of the day. I would start early. I'd always make somebody else the patsy for that, too, because you never want to be the last person between them and your food at dinner, you know, or getting, you know, getting out of there. So, but we had to stay. Anyway, back to our regularly scheduled podcast. So you eventually, you able to, so you end up being a good boy and just play the game and get through the academy without any major. Wait a minute. We forgot to ask you the most important question about the academy. How many memos did you have to write? <laughs> Actually, not uh, not many because I, I passed. Well, wait a minute. Not, not many. many. <laughs> I, had, I had a couple in there. You know, I had a couple in there because – I, remember when we used to do the box? What, not many compared to who? Charles Manson? I mean, yeah. if he'd gone through the academy, what, what's not many? Two, five, uh, ten? I would say like three or four, you know, it was, and it was just mostly because like some of like the the, the ethics stuff when they were talking about that, Griswold was Now, wait like, a minute. I thought you paid attention in ethics. I did pay attention in ethics, but it, because I argued, I had to write a memo. And then when I wasn't paying attention in CS class, CS hand, confidential source handling class, I had to write a memo for that. I remember that. And then <laughs> there were a couple other ones here and there, you know, but, but nothing, nothing bad, nothing that, nothing that, you know, caused any real problems. I mean, you know, I, I actually enjoyed the Academy. I actually, because, you know, I was like so i work out i shoot and i get to eat as much food as i want and you get paid and you get paid you fucking kidding me i was bringing home more money in the academy than i did as a cop you know i was like fuck this is great you know this is great if i can just get through the ethics class and pay attention i'll be good but if you guys remember this is 1996 this is when we were having those three feet snowstorms down there so like oh, to yeah. shoot you're shooting in the snow you're shoveling out oh. you're getting to shoot and my wife is home pregnant shoveling out the driveway at our house while I'm down at Quantico. And so, so, so her, her sensitivity toward people who sit there when they're pregnant and they go, Oh, I feel so bad. She's like, I had two dogs. I was walking and I was shoveling my own self out to go to work every day. You know, she doesn't have a whole lot of sympathy well, when people go, oh, I don't my feel husband good. abandoned me. Yes. Abandoned me. Well, I had moved to Virginia that I was still a detective, but you know, Southwest Kansas, there were times to where we would actually close the highways. The only way you could get around was actually in National Guard half tracks. I remember doing that one time, but I will tell you, 
the biggest change uh, of that I saw when we moved out to Virginia is we were used to taking our kids. I had a, a, a Yukon, a GMC Yukon, you know, you throw the kids in the vehicle. So what if the snow's up to their knees or up to their thigh? doesn't matter. Throw them out. They go to school. They're fine here. They got two inches of snow. Schools were shut down for an entire week. I'm going, oh, yeah. what do you mean? Well, Tommy, I had the other end of that. We were, I was at the Academy in the summer. Oh. So, and, and, and uh, Morgan, you don't know this, but when you're outside on the range, you had to walk. If you're not sitting in the bleachers or on the line to shoot, you have to run everywhere you go. So it's, you know, it's uh, 98 degrees and 100% humidity there at Quantico Marine Corps Base. It was hard to hold on to the weapons sometimes. You're sweating well, so bad. I did that at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, 1979, June and July of 1979. Everywhere we went, it was 103 degrees, 100% humidity. Yeah. You're in combat boots and everything else carrying an M16. And yeah, nobody stands. Well, and, and he was talking about how the, the Bureau guys were, were treated there in their khaki pants and light blue shirts. Yep. So, it you know, the Marine Corps base has, if it gets too hot and too humid, they put the black flags out. You're not yeah. supposed to run when the black flag's out. So we'd come out running out of the out of the facility to go out to the track, and there's a black flag, and you're like, oh, we don't have to run outside today. And, and the instructors are like, get your happy ass down there on the track. There's a shower. Shower off real quick. We're running. We're going to hit the trank, tra- trank tails today. You go run a five-mile run. Maybe we'll put a black flag out when you're chasing Pablo later on in Columbia. Yeah, you don't exactly. have to go out and chase LaRue either, Tommy, because it's a black flag day. Man, you didn't get any, you didn't get any breaks. Yeah, you just kind of laugh. I mean, I always, I always loved. I mean, the FBI, and I have nothing against how they do their academy. I think they have a, a they have their methodology, and I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think there is a certain, you know, way of treating people and teaching people that is more conducive sometimes in in, in a different atmosphere. So I, I don't have a problem with what they, how they do it. I, I just kind of wished I would have been treated that way occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but, but nobody it, looked at me. And said, hey, Tommy, this is a college class. Enjoy yourself. <laughs> and I wouldn't look at you and say you're the sensitive kind of guy that's going to get your feelings hurt either. You don't look like that kind of guy. No, I, you know, my, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of give a fucks na- then. I have none now. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, as always in the, as we found out through talking to people in the DEA Academy, at, at some point, and how did it work for you? Did you know where you were going when you hired on or did you have to put in for it? And they told you at the end. So how did you come about finding out about where your first post was going to be? I can't remember. I think it was about six weeks in, something like that. They said uh, they put out all the openings that were available to our class. And I looked at it and, you know, I was trying to stay East Coast because all all our family, mine and my wife's family was East Coast. So I was like, okay, if I can pull East Coast, that would be kind of the best, best, go around all around for us. Um, so it was kind of funny. So I put Newark, New Jersey as number one on my list. I was, Oh I my was, gosh. Yeah, 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 yeah. I put Newark, New Jersey as number one. Why did one. you just, why did you just put, you know, you know, North Korea on your list or, <laughs> you know, or Tehran, Iran. I mean, those would have been safer places than Newark. No, Newark, Newark was, Newark was the greatest thing I ever did for my career, believe it or not. Um, and then I put Miami number two and Houston number three. And, you know, you know, as I toy with it, you know, as you go through the ups and downs of your marriage and life, sometimes you go, guy, God damn, I wish I would have gone to Houston or God damn, I wish I would have gone to Miami. Um, but it just, you know, from a, from a, a personal perspective, right? Because, you know, you'd be in the same area for so long, you get kind of tired of the same shit you look at and the same, uh, same people. Um, but, um, 
I, I got Newark, and I, I, I was fortunate to go to uh, beautiful Newark, New Jersey, and I loved every minute of my time there. And you know what we used to say? God bless you guys that want to go to Newark and New York. <laughs> Let them go. Yeah. It takes a special kind of person to go up there. Yeah. Well, they, um, they don't it, talk like I do up there. No, they don't. And it's kind of funny when you would hear guys, like when they would sit there, they saw Newark on the listener eyes would get real big. And I was like, well, I'm going to put it number one. They're like, oh, okay, good, good, good. You know, there's only two openings there. Anybody else? You know? <laughs> Any other suckers? Well, I mean, the uh, volunteers. Yeah, and <laughs> and you know, I was I was uh, it, it worked out well for me, and and I, I liked Newark. I you know I I was on uh, limited entitlements or uh, half entitlements. Remember when you moved? So because if you came from federal service, you get full entitlements where they would pay for your move and everything like oh, that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> so when I had to, and this was this was under the this was all under the Tom Constantine era. Of DEA. Oh, we've heard that name before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Every DEA agent's corrupt. He was a dickhead, but you know, absolutely. That's beside, yeah, that's beside the point. Um, you know, and he hated Newark, New Jersey. If you remember, Murph, that's where he banished um, Mr. Coleman to John Coleman because he challenged him. Uh, I think Mr. Coleman was one of the principals at DEA at the time, maybe. Yeah, he was. And, up, he was way up there. Yeah, and he challenged Constantine um, with fraud about fraud, waste, and abuse of being in charge, and he got sensed to be the sack of New Jersey, and no cars ever got fixed. Like they treated us like shit. <laughs> I mean, when I got that, when I got to Newark, I was the first new agent in like five years. Like my, 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 the guy in my group who was the next. Most junior was a thirteen five. Wow. Hey, hey, was Mike Agrifolio there? Yes. Yes. Super. Yes. I love that guy. I love that guy. Aggravation. He was another yeah. great one. There was. Well, I'm glad we could bring you guys together and have old home week here. Yeah, but, it just makes me feel good. Mike, yeah. he's a good guy. Yeah. yeah, Mike's a great guy. Um, yeah, and, and and like I said, Newark was great for me. I got to work really good cases. I had um, I had great boss. But my first boss was Jimmy Capra. Oh, um, hey, we're going to get him on the show, Morgan, by the way. He's got a great story. Oh, Jimmy's, great story. Jimmy's Is it about Tommy? Uh, well, probably <laughs> would, uh, there, I didn't think about that, but probably. But he's he was involved in this huge seizure out in L.A. We got to get him on the show. Well, Jimmy, I used to send Jimmy an email every year. We used, he used to call me the prodigal son. Um, you know, so I would always send him an email every year, wherever he was working at the time. And, and we would just laugh, but Jimmy was one of, was a true gentleman and, and, Absolutely. Just, and one of the, he was the, he was the best boss a young guy could ask for when you first came on and cause he would give you shit and he, but he would give you shit in a way to teach you. So you learn the job the right way. And, you know, Look, Newark was not a warm and fuzzy place if you couldn't perform. There were talented, talented, talented fucking agents there. There were guys like Greg Hilton, Ralph Ebeling, John Post, um, you know, just just tremendous. John McCabe. They were just fantastic agents. And so if you could not hold your end of the bargain, you would not be well thought of. Uh, I remember when I made my first kilo seizure. And when I say that, it meaning it was my case. I did it. I worked the informant. Not a lot of, no senior, like, this is what you're going to do. You know, little guidance here and there. But you did it. I locked up all these people. I got it. 
the next day, it was like a rite of passage. Like guys came up congratulating you, telling you what a good job you did. It was a big deal. Because you've been big, accepted. Yeah, you were accepted. You were one of the guys. And um, that was important. And, and, and it turned out to be a really important thing because, um, Murph, like the bosses in New Jersey were like at that time, it was, you know, Jimmy Capra, Tommy Harrigan, Tim Ogden. Wow. Uh, you know, Tommy Ma. Yeah, uh, you know, some so, big names in DEA. Correct. And, and, and you, you know, getting to know those guys as a GS9, where they were your GS14s, you know, it set your path. You had people you could reach out to. You knew people. You know, John McCabe, he, he you know, he became my boss in Washington, D.C., you know, so. Skippy. That's what we called him, Skippy. Uh, John, hey, real quick. Real quick, Tommy, prior to that case, what was the biggest seizure of dope you had working the task forces and stuff that you were involved with? How big, how big of a case had you made or been involved with before? I had been involved in a case that got a kilo, but, it, and, and, you know, you're talking about 90, but, but it wasn't like multiple kilos. And it, I was just part of the case. I was maybe like, if I was doing undercover, I was maybe buying, you know, three, four ounces, you know, I wasn't doing the big time deal like that. And it would be normally tight, you know, Sometimes they'd be getting it on a wiretap or a tip from an informant after I had done undercover. So it wasn't like I was like making huge seizures as a local cop um, when I was in when I was in Maryland. I, I did good work. I did solid work. I mostly worked a lot of violence, um, but it's not like we were getting huge amounts. My, my, when I walked into New Jersey, the first case was a 17 kilo controlled delivery. I was like, what the fuck is that? You know, <laughs> you, you know. that's like my first case he did. They were doing was it Turks and Caicos or whatever, 400 kilos. He goes, I didn't know there, there's not that much cocaine in the whole world. Exactly. Not one time. <laughs> yeah. They were bringing these guys up. They were flying them up from Louisiana to do this controlled delivery. I was like, what the fuck? This is, this is what I signed on for. You know, it's greatest well, that's shit like in the world. Jeff, when we had Jeff Moron talking about uh, Leo Sharp, you know, in the mule case, he made a 15 or 16 kilo deal up in Detroit. He says, we have just put an end to drug trafficking in, in <laughs> Michigan as we know it. Yeah. 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 And, 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 but, but then what you start to learn and John McCabe would always say this when we were working, he'd always go, we don't put dope in jail. We put people in jail and you got to get rid of the people. You can seize all the dope you want, but you got to yep. put people in jail. And John was like, excellent point. Excellent point. That was McCabe, that was McCabe's John McCabeism. Yeah, that was McCabeism, and, and and everybody who worked for him in our Met team group, we all knew that. So, well, I will I will tell you, we I was part of a team that put dope in jail one time <laughs> as a state trooper. The actually it was the DEA. This is an old case, but they actually out of Oklahoma City, they were shadowing a plane that had 800 pounds of weed on it. And they were in a King Air. And so they shattered it to one of these little old Army Air Corps bases that were all over western Kansas and southwest Kansas. DEA actually used to have uh, tripwires on their sensors so that if a plane landed, we'd know about it. Well, they're shadowing this one. And long story short, this thing had 800 pounds on it. It landed in Gray County. And so what they did was rather than trying to take 800 pounds all the way back to Wichita or whatever, they put it in the old Gray County Jail, which was the old strap iron jail. Uh, and so they have 800 pounds in there. First of all, it reeks. Second of all, they arrested about half the trustees they had because these guys figured out how to reach all the way through <laughs> the strap iron. They're pinching <laughs> off the load there. Yeah. Bill Kramer was the sheriff at that time. And we're like, dude, you're the biggest fucking drug dealer in southwest Kansas. You know that. That's so funny. That is. That's so that's 
That's funny. Right. But you couldn't stories. do that anywhere but in a sheriff's department, right? Because most police departments would have all these rules. Sheriff just goes, I'm the fucking boss. Lock it there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, lock it. And that's what Absolutely. he did. And, uh, that's so why I love sheriffs. I love sheriffs. They're the greatest guys in the world because they're just like, it's my call. We were joking. 800 pounds became 400 pounds, which became 200 pounds. I said, are we going to have anything left by the time you guys get to trial? But anyway. Hell no. It's like doing a reverse, right? The guy's digging into the kilo after you wait it. Get in he, goes, he goes, look at all the arrests we're making in Gray County, though. My numbers are going to look good this year. <laughs> I think that's called entrapment, Bill. But anyway, back to our regularly scheduled podcast. So uh, you're working Newark and you're working these cases now. Um, but at some point, you start, I mean, you start moving up, right? So what are the things that you're doing that allow you to start taking on bigger cases and more responsibility? Because eventually we're going to talk about how you ended up in the special operations division, the 960 group. But to get there, you got to be a performer. You just don't get there because you're cute, good looking, you know, and the love of Jesus and your pretty blue eyes. Um, and I have you, you none of that. So, so. Yes, yes. <laughs> maybe the love of Jesus, but that's about well, that's, it. That's Clint Eastwood, right? You know, yeah. the, you know, got, I got the badge, I got the gun, I got the love of Jesus, Jesus in my yeah. pretty blue eyes, Clyde. Yeah. Um, so, so let's start talking about what kind of things were you doing? What kind of a DEA agent were you that allowed you now to start moving up and doing those things? What were you doing that was different than everybody else? So, so one of the things I did is I learned how to make relationships with some of the local PDs that really. Um, that nobody was working with. I worked with the Edison Police Department in Edison, New Jersey, and I basically got carte blanche with their narcotics team, and they were within Middlesex County, New Jersey. So I created this relationship with them where I started out doing, you know, you, you just kept doing cases, right? And I would do cases and learn how DEA did cases. Um, I would come back and put it on paper and Jimmy Capper would give me shit about how I wrote something or my senior partner would give me shit about how I wrote something. And you'd, you'd change it. And, and you just kept doing these small cases and small cases. And then, um, you know, I did the, the Kilo case, which was a really nice one. And I, I was really proud of that. But then I got one. I was Jimmy Capper sent me to Klan lab school because why? Because nobody else wanted to fucking go. Right. Like I was the <laughs> only and, and I lived in Maryland and it was at Camp Upshur in Virginia. So he was like, hey, look, it's a two, it's a it's a week school. I did all three. I did advanced. So I did two weeks like at each one. Jimmy was like, look, it's close to home. This will be good for you. you know. So yeah. that's why I got to go to Klan lab school <laughs> turned out to be a great thing for me um i learned a little bit about it and so i did a case um uh on some uh filipino traffickers that were moving ice i got i got into the informant and i can't remember i can't remember how we got the informant um I think she was handed to me by a local jurisdiction. I think the Edison guys handed her to me, if I remember correctly. And I started working because it was in uh, Wayne, New Jersey. And, um, you know, I started working this case and we started doing buying meth and buying crystal meth. And it was a big deal because nobody had really seen it up there. It had been a long time. It was in the um, it was in the gay, gay clubs. You know, you would see some crystal meth in there, but it wasn't like a really big thing. And this informant goes, she goes, look, I'm Filipino. She goes, we like the smoke shabu, which is meth, crystal meth. And we like to throw darts. And she goes, that's what we do. And she was a nurse. And she said, I can get you into all these people. 
So then, as I'm working this case, I get a call from Wayne. Hey, real quick, Tommy, why why did she cooperate with you? What, what, how did you end up? Was that something Edison PD did, or is that somebody you developed? I, that was somebody Edison PD did, and they called me because she was talking about things in Newark, um, up on Manila Avenue. Was she Avenue getting jammed up on another charge or they anything? Could, or? They could have. They could have. They didn't to keep okay. her out and let her work and, and let her work for me, but she had to work for me. And... Um, they were up on Manila Avenue in Jersey City, and then we started hearing about all this stuff in Wayne, New Jersey, and we actually got a call about a weird smell from the Wayne Police Department. And I'll never forget it because, I, Murph, you might remember him, Jerry Speziow. Do you remember Jerry? Spees, oh yeah. Yeah, so Jerry Speziow, who was who was one hell of an eight, uh, one hell of a task force officer, um, uh, you know. Gets me hooked up with the Wayne guys, and he says, "Look, he says, he says, big deal, kid. You you make this happen, right?" And this was it, it, it was good because we ended up taking off all this meth. It was a processing area where they would take the crystal meth, put it into denatured alcohol, dry it, and start um, the process again. So it was it, after we hit it, it was actually a clan lab cleanup too. And we had never done a clan lab cleanup, right? Like New Jersey had been a long time. I think Mike Pastichek did one down in Monmouth County. Like it was a super fun fucking site. Um, and so we get, we lock up a bunch of people. And one of the things we find in there, I'll never forget one of, I think it was Ronnie Delfidio climbs up in the ceiling and looks, he almost falls out of the ceiling. And it was an aborted fetus in formaldehyde, right? Oh, oh, man. And we find out that the woman... What had, the fuck? The woman didn't bury it. She kept it. It was her aborted fetus. But, oh, my oh, God. But here's That's the gross. fucking funny thing about it. I mean, I hate to say funny thing about it. This is terrible. This is where the black humor comes in in this shit, right? So it's in there. We seize it as evidence, but we turned it over to Jack Fascinella at the Northeast Regional Lab, who was one of the chemists who kept it in his office till the day he fucking retired. Oh. You know? That's was, gross. Yeah, it was just one of those fucking things. Like it was just madness. And but that's we, the kind of shit these people do. They get involved. I mean, you start getting involved in these drugs. People don't realize the path it takes you. You've got those websites out there that call the faces of meth. You watch people over oh, time yeah. how they change. It, it just it's terrible. And for to do stuff like that, that's just. I mean, cops have black humor. But on the other hand, when you look at it just from a human side of it, you go, what does it take for somebody to do something like that? Yeah, and and look, I laugh about a lot of this because it's the only way I cope with a lot of it. Like I, I sit there and laugh. I mean, I probably got a shitload of PTSD in my background, you know, from all this different shit between the homicides that I've seen and things like that. So, you know, I kind of look at everything from a dark humor perspective. Um and, you know, we do that case and then ultimately we we work with um we're tracking this load of crystal meth that we think is coming out of the Philippines and we get a tip on it that it's going to go up to Alaska and come down because that was the route of the plane and it was going to make its way to Newark, New Jersey. And we ended up seizing 10 kilos of crystal meth, which was a big seizure at the time. Man, that, yeah, at that time, that's huge. Um, so we took off and it was kind of funny. We, we arrest all these people, do the seizures, go, work with Queens narcotics because we hit a place over in, in Queens and it was really a good case. It was a good, solid case. Guy came to the door with a hundred thousand dollars in, in a bag. I mean, it, you know, they were not school traffickers like the Colombians or anybody like that comes with a hundred thousand dollars 
dollars gets yanked. You know, Queens guy's like, get in here. You know, we seize, seize his money, lock him up, um, make this case. And, um, you know, that was kind of my, 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 my really next step, right. Um, in doing this. And I made, and, and it was kind of funny though, but after the arrest, I'll tell you, we take them to the Passaic County jail and the Passaic County jail, these jail guards are some of the biggest sons of bitches you've ever seen in your life. I mean, when I tell you they are big, they are big, and they're all big weightlifters. And I mean, they, are you talking about the the prisoners or the the, the, the guards? The, the guards? guards? Yeah, okay. because it's the sheriff's department, so they're officers and corrections officers. And I mean, they have their own weightlifting team. I mean, they eat small children. That's how big these guys are, right? <laughs> So I bring in, I've, we've got a van, we've got a, we've got a minivan. My, my, my partner, Greg Hilton, he, he was my senior partner. We got like eight little Filipino guys stuffed in his minivan and we drive them to the Passaic County jail and we get them out. We start marching them forward to him. And the guy looks at me, I'll never forget it. The guard, this monster, he looks at me, he goes, you ought to be ashamed of your fucking self. <laughs> these fucking little guys he goes they're going to be washing somebody's socks in here kid you know what I'm like hey, what, are you, what are you going to do oh, it probably looked like a clown car pulling oh, up all these little guys piling out of there it was hysterical <laughs> it was hysterical so so that was kind of the, the you know so I had done the one case then I did this case and then we did a case involving you know I kept getting these leads as a result of being the clan lab guy. Um, and, and you would get filtered leaves, leads and um, diversion was working a case and diversion back then didn't, didn't do as much as they do now at DEA and diversion right. does pharmaceuticals and things like that. And do hey, yeah. and uh, that's a real quick diversion, but just the other thing too, is tell people what the diversion, because diversion are their agents, but they're different kind of agents. They're, they don't carry guns, right? They're just uh, investigate pharmaceuticals, doctors, hospitals, stuff like that. Yeah. And, and they did a lot of really good work back then, but they were not like they are now. The people who are doing it now at really high speed and really, 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 really good. And DEA has always gotten better and better at that. And even at the time, they were really good. They just didn't have the manpower and their mandates, you know, their authorities and mandates were weird. But we had one of the diversion guys, I can't remember his name, really good guy, comes over to me and he says, hey, look. I got this case going. I'm seeing all these, um, uh, it's called mini thins. It was some sort of pseudoephedrine derivative, right? But you could extract the pseudoephedrine directly from this pill and it would be go to make meth. And it was run by Syrian guys. Okay. Now I didn't know what the fuck a Syrian was. Okay. Like you're sitting there and I'm like, okay, so we're doing surveillance on this place. And I mean, you're talking about huge boxes and I'm sitting there. I'll never forget with the senior partners, Ralph Ebeling and Greg Hilton. And we're watching this go down. They go, you would think this is fucking Coke the way it's going. They're bringing the boxes in. They repackage them in other boxes. They tape it up. Then they're taking it. They're going to take it down to the train station. They're riding in tandem. We don't understand, like, I didn't understand the significance of it. And I don't think anybody in Newark really did at the time because we just weren't seeing a lot of meth. But then that was being shipped to the West Coast. And what we learned was that was going to the Mexican mafia. 
um, which was kind of interesting. And I didn't know shit about the Mexican mafia back then. Right. You know, so it's you start getting this education of of things you you've never been exposed to before. So if you think about it, I go from, you know, a one kilo case to I'm doing crystal meth and, and this ice case dealing with Filipinos internationally. Then I'm doing this, this, this case with pseudoephedrine where I'm, I'm, I'm learning about, uh, uh, how, ephedrine is extracted from these pills to make methamphetamine and in dealing with Syrians. And then, you know, you're just kind of like, wow, uh, uh, you're learning. And then the next case in New Jersey, the really, the really interesting one was we start, I got a call about a guy getting GBL and I gamma, gamma butyrate, whatever. Right. Was Was that the Testosterone, I mean, the uh, steroid stuff or whatever. No, that Con- was a precursor to GHB, which is the date rape drug. Okay. Oh, so for hypnol and some other stuff. GBL is yeah. a cement cleaner. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, it was like an aerospace cleaner. They were saying, I remember that now that you said that. So, so, but wait, through- wait a minute. It's a, it's a, do you ever wonder about just the ingenuity? If these criminals would just apply their ingenuity to real world problems, how the hell does somebody sit around and go one day and says, you know, this aerospace cleaner, I think I'm going to turn it into a drug. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And it, it eats your brain. It, it literally eats holes in, a, in your brain. Yeah. And, and it's nasty. And, and this was one of these ones through bucket chemistry. Um, you could make GHB. And I had gotten a call. Tell from, us what bucket chemistry is. Um, you basically can take, you would take um, some charcoal and pour the GHB into the charcoal and let it trip out and it would come through and it would become, you know, GB, GHB. Do you take the GBL, move it through? It was very simple. Like dummies like me could do it, right? Like and, that's, and they did it in a bucket, right? Like Yeah, a they big... literally did it in a bucket. Yeah. Uh, and and they were getting this guy was getting gallons of it. And how I how I learned about it is I got a call from um, a chemical company. And the, the beautiful thing was when they called me, I said, where's the guy live? He goes, he goes, Edison, New Jersey. Bingo. <laughs> you know, Tommy's in the game again because he's got the boys. Uh, I don't have to rally the DEA troops because, you know, guys are working their own cases. So I call them and I said, this is what's going on. They're like, we're on it. We'll set up surveillance tomorrow. They they were my buddies. I hung with them all the time. That's where I did most of my work. Um, and so they set up surveillance. I tell Jimmy Capper what I got. He goes, oh, that's good. That's good. Let's get moving on this. Let's get surveillance down there. I get down there. The Edison guys are like, look, we'll get paper. You just tell us. We're, everything's set. Judge is on standby. Everything's on standby. Um, when it gets delivered, um, we're gonna, we'll hit the door when you say to. Jimmy Capper goes, look, I've done a lot of these controlled deliveries. Let's just give the guy time. Let it get in there. Let's see if he gets it started. Give him like a half hour to start breaking shit open and start doing things and start starting the chemistry process. I said, okay. Well, and and speak to that for a second because I'll lead you down a path which you answer. But one of the reasons to do that is because then the person can't feign ignorance. I don't know what was in the box. The box just showed up, right? But if you've opened up the box and you're starting to mess with it, now it's like, no, now you got knowledge. Because somebody could legitimately say, I could send you a package to your house and you go, I don't know what's in the box. Yeah, and that was exactly it. And and I didn't – well, and this, this goes to show you the experience level. At that time, I kind of – you know that, but you're so excited to do the job. That's why having these senior guys around that go, hey, kid, take a breath. Okay, we got to give it a second when it gets in the door because remember, we got to get them 
opening the box. And you go, oh, okay, that's right, that's right, that's right. And, and, and they kind of, again, it, it's, it's to, it, to put the, the bit in your mouth and slow you down and make you think a little bit. Um, so we hit this door, we go in there, and I'll never forget, like, the, it's open, nothing's in the bucket, but the bucket's out, everything's getting ready to get started. And uh, the guy has alopecia. I had never seen somebody with alopecia before, right? What is that? It's where he has no hair. None on his body, like no eyebrows, no hair on his head, nothing. Okay. And he's this big guy and he's got on these, uh, he's got on all black, like a black turtleneck, black pants. Right. And I'm like, this guy is fucking weird. Right. And, and they're searching the house. I'll never forget the guy from medicine, fat Freddy, fat Freddy goes, I got guns. Right. So we got guns in the house. We had a shitload of guns in the house. We were kind of surprised. So then I get one of the guys, Jimmy Capra, he gets a, one of the guys calls him and he says, what the fuck? And I go back there and we have a exam table, like a doctor's exam table. And on the table next to it is, another, you know, next to this, the examination table is another table with all sorts of female examination accoutrements, like speculums and things like that. So, and we found tapes and apparently this guy was a sexual, a serial rapist using the GHB and then bringing people back and he would tape him doing examinations on, um, drugged oh, up Jesus. women. Right. And I did, you know, I, I got it because of just the dumb shit I was doing. I was working a drug case and we find this and I'll never forget when we locked him up. Um, the Middlesex County prosecutor's office kind of took over the case after that because it was more of a, it was a bigger criminal case than it was a drug case. And, you know, I got to be a little party to that. And I got to learn a little bit about that side of, you know, the criminal world that I didn't, I didn't have any real knowledge of. The, I mean, the I had real bait. sick puppies out there. Yeah. Yeah. How many victims? Did you ever find out how many victims? I never found out how many total victims. Um, uh, and, and I can't even remember what the guy got. But I will tell you this: that was one of the that was one of the uh, investigations I used to get my thirteen packet approved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. Yeah. Understood. Yeah. And 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 then you know it was, so it was kind of neat. We had, and the and the and the chemical world had another neat thing because you know I kept getting calls. I had a guy trying to extract saffron from sassafras oil to create uh, MDMA. I mean. Crazy shit. So people are just so creative. Hey, real quick, you yeah. talked about your 13 package. So for the uninitiated out there, you 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 get promoted, right? You get hired on at a certain GS level, and then you move your way up. So to get to a 13, which is a more senior position, more uh, money, you've got to put in a package. So just tell everybody real quick what 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 you have to do to get promoted, and what that why that case was so important as part of your package. What did it demonstrate? So so here's the thing. So I came on as a nine, and you you kind of automatically get your. 11 and your 12, right? And then normally when you have your 12, you have to wait three years to, to get your 13 unless you can apply early. And that's the, that's the, the 13 for DEA is the journeyman grade. That's the highest you can be. You get step increases after 13, but you're kind of the top pay scale at that point. Next um, step is a supervisor. Correct. Correct. And so you have to put together a package if you want to be promoted early. Um, 
displaying your competency as an investigator. And you have to write all these wonderful things about yourself and the cases you've done in order to do this case. And you basically have to say, look, I'm the greatest drug investigator in the entire fucking world. There, Isn't that you, the way you normally wrote your reports anyway? Oh my, well, <laughs> I got to tell you, it was, the most, it was the most uncomfortable feeling in the world when you do it because, you know, it, it, I'm working with these senior guys who are just guiding me along and teaching me. And you're like, and, 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 and I remember uh, Greg Hilton goes, bro, it's no problem. We all did it. We all got to do it, right? And I remember I wrote it the first time. Jimmy Capric takes it and he goes, kid, fucking do it again. You're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Write it fucking again. And I keep writing it and I keep writing it. And I, I must have written it five times before then, Jimmy. Well, goes, you're, you're good at doing stuff like the SF-171 seven times. Yeah, you know, he went like, through spelling class. He knows how to spell. How, many, how big was this packet? When you say packet, we talking five pages, 10 pages, 15? Oh, no. Oh, I think no. It, yeah, yeah, I was going to say it's like 40 <laughs> pages, sometimes more, because you have to put supporting documents to the cases. It's a file. It's a whole file. Yeah, it's a big. I, I mean, I would say mine was like that thick i mean it, it was big and jimmy Cap Wait, what is that for guys is that six inches or what maybe in kansas <laughs> maybe in kansas i don't know yeah uh, but J thank god thank god jimmy took care of me and and he he helped me kind of finesse it and write it the right way and um you know and and he pushed it through and i got approved you know he you know and that was that was the big how many, thing so how how much time did you save yourself getting to the gs13 a year year and a half Two years. I got I got Two. promoted right away. I got I I was. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I got literally as soon as I was eligible after one year, I got it almost immediately after they approved it. So it it, it was I think it was retro. Were they retroactive? I can't remember, but but I, I got so. it. As, I got it as soon as I could, and and that was that was significant because that lets you get your step increase next, right? Like that's the next time you get your pay raise. So. You want to get it early so you can get that next step increase. And yeah, because in the federal service, uh, for the folks, like I said, there's a lot of folks may not have done it. So you, you get you can get promoted to a 13, but then there's uh, step one, right, and step two. So you've got interim steps between that and a 14. So it's not like you just get paid at a 13 and that's it until you get a 14. You've got right. ways to move your pay up incrementally, right? Yes, Yes. And right. so and see, that's that's the benefit of working with senior guys with a, a lot of experience is they will help you get that 13. And it's it's a significant raise. You're a journeyman level now. You know, yep. it's it's your senior agent. Yeah. And that was one of the big things like we talked about being accepted. That's why you had you, you couldn't be a dickhead. OK, you, you, you've got to work hard. Guys got to respect you. And they got to have a reason to want to help you. And and I, I was fortunate and, and I was fortunate that I worked with such good guys and I had good supervisors and, and it, you know, I couldn't. I, you know, it was great. It was great. Who evaluates I, your 13 package? Where does that go to? Well, you so the GS is first and then he puts a cover letter on it. Then it goes, which to, is the group supervisor, group supervisor. Right? Then it goes to the assistant special agent in charge. He puts a cover letter on it. Then it goes to the SAC and he puts a cover letter on it. Then it went down the headquarters to uh, Murph, uh, not OPR, but the who was the group? Um, uh, it was probably a section within inspections. I'm guessing it was, it was, that's exactly, it went to inspections and there was a group within inspections who did it. And then they read everything and they give you the yay or nay on it. Um, and normally if it's, what happens is, is normally your GS knows somebody down at inspections. He goes, uh, Hey, my guy's things in there, get it fucking approved for him. You know, he's a good kid. 
and um, they normally move it along pretty quick as long as you have that rabbi who will make that f- make that phone so call for you. So it took a sign yeah. off from a group supervisor, an ASAC, a SAC, and then Down somebody inspection. in inspection. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But if that, but if you, but if you didn't know somebody, if your boss didn't know somebody in inspections, you might sit for a while and not because you not get it, not because you didn't deserve it, but just because they didn't get to it. And so you had to have somebody who made you a priority. So I was fortunate. Jimmy Capra. There you go. It. Writing those letters helped you early yeah. on. Well, it, it is. <laughs> it, it, here, 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 herein lies the lesson. Don't be a dick. There you go. There you go. And, you know, Jimmy made it all the way up to chief of domestic operations. So he made it to the highest levels eventually. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it was funny because he was uh, he was um, he was chief of ops when I was when we were running the LaRue case. So, oh, cool. So, so yeah. So so he, I never got to see him when we were doing this case, but he used to tell Lou Millione, who was the boss, he goes, ah, Jersey guy. That's because of me. The reason he's fucking this good, you know. And there's a lot of truth to that. A lot of truth well, Lou, to that. Yeah. Lou Millione yeah. is a name. If people will go back and listen to uh, Zach's episode, which I believe Zach's episode, I have the list up right here, was um, episode 19, where we talked about Victor Boot, the Merchant of Death. So Lou Millione was involved in that case as well. So you'll see a lot of crossover between these cases. As an update, as an update, Lou Millione is now the deputy administrator of DEA. He retired, and then they brought the new administrator brought him on as deputy. Yep. Cool. Good man. He's a good man. Very well, good man. Let's talk about your glide path because eventually we're going to talk about the Larue case. Um, but to do that, you've got to get into certain places. You've got to get into the Special Operations Division. I mean, you've got to get into this 960 group. Uh, which is kind of funny when you people read about it, that, that very secretive, highly you know restricted 960 group, and you guys are going, fuck, what, what, they, what are they talking about? Let's talk about your glide path now. So you get your 13. <laughs> what things are you working on between the time you get your 13 and before uh, special operations starts becoming a reality for you? So I put in a voluntary transfer, and I headed home uh, to the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area because my wife wanted to come home. We, we had a three-year-old family, all, all the normal bullshit we all get fucking way down with during our lives, right? Normal shit. Um, and I figured if my wife was happy, then I'd be able to work the way I wanted to work. Um, so I ended up in Washington, D.C., and I went to work. Um, I started out working in a regular division group there, which was fine. And then I moved over to Met, and um, I worked in the Met groups, and I did deployments. And ultimately— um, Met jo- as in the mobile enforcement teams? Yeah, I apologize. Mobile enforcement teams. No, no, teams. that's okay, because we actually just did a Patreon episode. Steve's, uh, we do our Case of the Month, which just came out on Patreon. By the way, Game of Crimes, or Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. But Steve talked about a uh, big Met case they did down in uh, Clarksville, uh, Tennessee. So these all things all come together. So you're on the Met team and you're taking guns and bad people off the street, aren't you? Yeah. And we were work. I was working for it. And here's just, and this is kind of how it works. You know, John McCabe, who was one of the GS 13s in New Jersey came down and became the, uh, got promoted, was a staff coordinator at SOD and then came over and became the GS 14 group supervisor of the Met team in Washington, DC. And he and I knew each other. I became his backup and I went to, I went to work, for him and we worked in dc and our goal was uh, we were working um uh, 
violent drug um, trafficking organizations, but we focused on helping develop witnesses that could be used in homicide, open homicide cases in Washington, D.C., so we could help out the homicide division at the same time. Um, and we were pretty successful at it. We did a really good job, and, John, and, and that's a lot of credit to John because uh, John had the political clout to operate within DEA and get us certain things um, to make us more effective. So, I mean, you, the, the great thing about it is with all of these relationships, this is this is what's serving you well from your time on D.C., your time on Laurel, uh, building the cases like in New Jersey, you're making relationships. And like you said, when I asked you, um, you know, what was one of the things that helped get you in, you know, obviously get you into SOD, you know, and uh, later, which it's it's this ability to build relationships, which also means informants, confidential sources. So. You're now working the Met team in uh, D.C., and you're working with your buddy there. Um, how long does that last? I'm there until about 2003, four. yeah, something like that. And when did you start in uh, D.C.? Uh, 1999. Um, and, and a critical point of that, 1999, is what I started working with a guy named Eric Stouch, who we'll, I'll, we'll talk about later with the LaRue case. Yeah. But, but yeah, so. So we're all in. So the other thing, too, we all have in common, we're all in. Well, were you in D.C. the day of 9-11? Uh, I actually was getting ready to head to work when it happened. And I was actually at my house. Um, because My daughter was, I guess she was about four years old, you know, when that happened. And, you know, know exactly. I was out in front of my yard. I was playing with her before I was getting ready to head to work. And I started driving into work and they said, don't come in, you know you know, don't come in yet. We're not going to do anything yet. We got to see what's going on. And everybody was kind of on freeze. And that was a really weird time. It was weird because you felt helpless. You wanted to help, but you felt helpless because you wanted to go in. Um, what can I do? How can I help? How can I make a difference? And it, it was really frustrating when, when it happened because everybody wants to be there to do the right thing and help. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and we've all talked about it, too. I was in the Reagan building, supposed to be in the Pentagon meeting switch. You walk across the Roslyn Bridge. I can see the Pentagon burning as I'm walking across going into Roslyn, you know. And, uh, uh, yeah, just and by the way, past them little bastards on the toll road that morning. I'm driving into D.C. Those guys are driving out to Dulles Airport, the ones that go from there. So it's like – and you're right. It becomes kind of personal, but you're kind of in this weird thing. And that's the reason I wanted to ask you because it is – it, it's kind of weird because, look, life still goes on. There's investigations that are going on, but we're kind of in this unique bubble of where we don't know what's going to happen next or what's going to go on. And so what happens to your investigations? What? How long does it take before you're back you know, in some kind of a rhythm from an investigative standpoint? It takes it takes a while. I would say it ta it took about eight weeks. You you kind of because they were like, oh, we might need you to go down to the Pentagon and help with cleanup, or you know, can you, you can volunteer for that? We might need you to be an air marshal, and you can volunteer for that. And um, you put your name on these lists to see in case they need you. Um, and and it just kind of kind of you kind of lose a lot of momentum but but to be quite honest the world lost a lot of momentum and even even the drug traffickers lost momentum oh yeah because everything is shut down borders airlines you know just it impacts everybody yeah and and guys you know and you know you know 
you know, street truck guys get a little more creative at that time. They start cutting their shit a little bit more. They make it a little bit weaker, you know, trying to ride out when shit's going to get moving again, how things are going to be moving again. Because, you know, it's just a different game for a while. Um, when I say, when I say that, meaning, meaning selling and moving drugs. So, um, and especially, you know, I was on Met, so it is kind of more of a street level thing. Um, yeah, you can work up the to larger guys on the street and, and suppliers on the street, but you're working the streets. So it's a different animal. It's a different animal. Did you, did you change your, I mean, did this make you change your focus? I mean, did you guys start looking at everybody going, are, you know, are you the next fucking Osama bin Laden? Are you the next, you know, Nawaf al-Hazmi or Muhammad Atta that's out there? So we just kind of stayed focused on what we did because we were working the urban areas. I was in the 6th District of the Metropolitan Police Department. Our focus was that. Um, so from a Met perspective, it doesn't change your focus unless the bosses above you, because it's beyond my pay grade to make a decision where Tommy ends up. My job is to do my job, um, which is hard to take. Um, because you want to be in the middle of it, but that's not your place. Um, some guys took them on, took it all on as a, a personal challenge, and now we're going to look for the next Muhammad Atta's. Um, you know, I just kept doing what I do, and it, which was working drug cases and working in D.C. and just trying to do the best I can at what I do. Well. I mean, you must have had some success during that time, too, because I remember, I mean, you we watched the homicide rate go up. I don't remember who was chief because you had Ramsey at the time. Kathy Lanier came in, you know, at some time later. But at some time or at some point, the homicide rate peaked in D.C. and it actually started coming down to where I think like five or six years ago before it started coming back up again. They actually hit, I think they were either at 100 or below 100 for the first time in a couple decades. Yeah. And it, there was a lot of success there. But, I, you know, here's the secret. Here's the secret. Nobody will will uh, will talk about. But I'll tell you guys, you, you can thank Mayor Anthony Williams for that. OK, Mayor Anthony Williams would empty out these public housing projects and bulldoze them. Um, and what he did was, is he gave up the section eight vouchers and, you know, there's a guy who was on Mayor Williams protection detail, a DC police officer who was sitting there one day when Mayor Williams was talking to Wayne Curry, who was the County executive of Prince George's County. <clears throat> and the story goes way, uh, on the phone call, Wayne Curry goes, man, I just got, uh, you know, however many more uh, people on my Section 8 rolls. And, and what people don't understand is that's guaranteed money from the federal government for counties um, to have uh, to pay rent for people being in there. And Mayor Williams goes, yeah, I just got rid of that same percentage. OK, Mayor, what Mayor Williams did is he went and believed in gentrification of D.C. Um, he was put in there by a D.C. control board. It was controlled by the federal government. Um, so the, the whole change in D.C. occurred under Anthony Williams because he said, no, nah, we're not going to do this shit anymore. We're going to clean this up, and I'm going to bulldoze these places, and I'm going to get taxpayers in here. He was the guy with the bow tie, right? Yep. 
Yep. Yeah. Okay. Br- brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, knew how to manage everything. And and look, I mean, you can't argue. DC is a cosmopolitan city, second to none now. Um, a lot of the really bad areas have gotten much, much better. You you know, um, that area down by eleven. Uh, Anacostia. You look at the development along the river where the ballpark is now. You know, stuff like that. There's a lot. I, I've seen just a lot of change in the 21 years I've been out here. A hundred percent. And you know, so. So, you know, you can argue various points of that um, uh, and different people will for various reasons. But his the success came because of um, aggressive policing uh, and Mayor Anthony Williams deciding to make a change in the trajectory of the city and, and not go down the same road of public housing and trying to get more tax paying people in there. Um, and, and look, it, does that displace some poor people? Yeah, it does. And it's a shame it does. But but. It, it, it's the nature of the beast. It's it's what these cities do. They grow and contract and grow and contract. So, yeah, Cabrini Green I think is a big one in Chicago area too. That was a huge, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, look, I mean, we, we used to you, you. There's not much you can do about some of this. Some of this, you know, you can get into the whole aspects of this, whether it's um, social, racial, whatever it is. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I know that I knew a lot of really good poor people when I was working the streets um, who did the best they could. Um, I also knew there were a lot of people who took advantage. I mean, it, you know, it, well, and the one thing we should point out is while the, almost I mean, a big percentage of Washington, D.C. is black. Anthony Williams was black, too. So it, you, you couldn't really leverage a racial ang- angle against Anthony Williams because. You know, he he was he was the same race as and you know that he was dealing with. But I tell you, I remember that that even that, but that didn't stop people from, you know, well we want this and want that. But to your point, I think it was, it had become it had outlived its usefulness. The Section Eight because it was no longer about helping people. Instead, what it was doing was institutionalizing criminal behavior and people who were taking advantage of all these other people to run guns and drugs and dope. And to your point, the neighborhoods, you know, the reason they could control it, because they controlled the Section 8 housing, too. They controlled their area. Yeah. Yep. And they terrorized and, people. And Ramsey was the chief. At the, I just looked it up. He was the chief back then, too. And he was African-American as well. Yes. Yes. And, 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 and you know, that's where you start to you can have these debates, but you have to have real healthy debates about what you're doing, why you're doing it, how you're doing it. And I'm not and I'm not saying anybody's right or wrong. I, I mean, I, I always go that's a lot of the stuff is well above my pay grade. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that sh- that movie End of Shift with Jake Gyllenhaal. And there's this little mantra at the beginning of that where he says, I am not paid to have an opinion. I am simply here to enforce the law. And he goes through this whole thing. And I think I think that's what people forget. As a law enforcement officer, I'm not there to sit there and argue with you about what's valid or what's not valid. I'm simply there enforcing a law. That's that's what it is. And in a civilized society, that's what we, we do. So I used to have that all the time. And I'll tell you, but the toughest ones to have that conversation with, have you ever dealt with anybody from the posse comitatus? 
Or the sovereign citizens. Oh, the sovereign ci- Yeah, I am a man of blood and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm yeah, a traveler, yeah. you know, yeah. And look, it's like, I, I get it, but it's like, you know what, doesn't matter. You know, and at some point you can't reason with certain people. They want to argue with you. I found one of the fastest ways to stop arguments, especially as a trooper in southwest Kansas, when it's like today, like, you know, like 14 fucking degrees and the wind is blowing 15 miles an hour. Sir, step to the back of the vehicle for me. It's for safety. You know, step back here. They're outside for about two minutes and they're like, what, I just, 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 just let, let me sign. No, 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 sir. <laughs> I got to explain this whole ticket to you. After they're thoroughly frozen, you put them back in the car. They don't want to argue so much when they're freezing their nuts off. Yeah, I, well, I, I took I took a different approach. I would look at the bad guys if we were sitting there either doing an interview or something like that, and they'd be giving a shit. I said, "Do you need a hug?" And they'd look at you. I'd be like, "I, I really think you need a hug." I mean, we're all God's children here. Do you want me to give you a hug? And they weren't sure whether to believe you or think you're jacking with them, yeah, right? Yeah, they just would sit there. they get this confounded look on their face. And I, I, I just found a lot of times, like, when you talk to people, and they'd be like, oh, fuck you, man. And you just start laughing because once – and they, everybody starts laughing then, and it lightens the moment. It's not serious, and, and things that could have escalated don't escalate, and it doesn't have to – I learned to, from a training officer in Salina, Kansas, where back before domestic violence was treated the way it is now, but even then you'd have these situations. One his favorite taxes, he'd be in there and they'd, they'd be yelling back and forth. He says, excuse me for a second. Do you guys have any peanut butter? Because, I, I mean, I, do you have any peanut butter? And they all of a sudden, what happens was it was a great technique. He made them focus on him instead of each other. And then they both would agree. It's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Why are you asking for peanut butter? Listen, <laughs> my, 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 one of my sergeants in D.C. Who was, who was my best friend who I hunt with, I will tell you this story. This is one of the funniest things. We got a call for a violent domestic in the projects. He comes over the radio, Cruiser 223, do not enter. I'll be there shortly. He gets right around the corner. We go in with him. Everybody's yelling. It's mayhem mayhem we're all you know i'm like shut up shut up nobody's listening he sticks his finger up his fucking nose and they go everybody stops <laughs> and he digs out this booger and he starts rolling it between his fingers oh <laughs> and he's having this conversation about behavior Right? Oh jeez! And we, he gets done. He says everybody's going to behave here the rest of the night. Correct? Everybody, yeah, yeah. And he's just sitting there like this, right, holding this, because they're wondering if he's going to flick it on the floor. What gonna the fuck he's going to do? do? <laughs> yeah, what's he fucking going to do? And he, we walk out, and he goes, Pip. he goes. Job done, boys. And we were like, what the fuck? You know? I what the hell's wrong with you? I deployed a tactical booger to stop the violent situation. <laughs> oh, my God. I'll never forget that. It was the funniest fucking thing I had ever seen in my life. Steve, all uh. I want to know is, do you think he maintained his reconnoiter? <laughs> 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 and for folks who haven't followed us, that is one of our favorite lines. We actually, uh, Tom, you don't know this, but we did the uh, movie review on our Patreon channel of Die Hard. Greatest Christmas movie ever made. Yeah. Let's just get that out there. But we actually had one of the guys from L.A. SWAT, the guy that was involved in the North Hollywood shootout that took okay. out the guys, Rick Massa. He was our he was our expert commentator. And so we asked him, we said, have you ever heard that before at LAPD SWAT? Maintain your reconnoiter. He goes, never fucking heard that before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nobody knows what it means. No. <laughs> anyway, we digress. So getting back into your glide path into SOD. So, I mean, you're working this stuff. You're in D.C. up until 2004. How and then I it... had – so I had the Baltimore after that. Why? Well, I so my mom – I guess this is 2004-ish, 2005. It's right around there. My mom had just come back from London, England. She had been assigned there with NSA. Um, 
And uh, she comes back and she's diagnosed with multiple myeloma, which is a blood cancer. And um, where she was going to live at the time was near us. And Baltimore was a little more convenient for me to help with my mom. And, and look, I'll be was honest. Was she going with, to John Hopkins or anything? She was going to Hopkins. And 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 she she didn't have to go all the way downtown because they have satellite offices of Hopkins in Columbia and things like that. Um, but... I, I, it was easier for me. And, and like I said, to be honest, who ended up taking on the brunt of that burden was my wife. My wife would take my mom a lot more than I would because, you know, I was still working. Um, but Baltimore was an easier commute and was easier for me to, to be with my mom and, and do things if necessary. But like I said, my wife took the brunt of that, that, that mm-hmm. burden. Which usually happens in the home. The wives or the spouses end up with all that responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and look, you know, like I tell people that, you know, I, I didn't want my mom to die, but the, the last, you know, five, six years of her life were a tremendous blessing. She ate dinner with us, you know, several nights a week, um, every Sunday, you know, my, my, my daughters, she's like Mary Poppins to my daughters, you know, it it was, it was a tremendous, tremendous blessing. Uh, the time we got to spend with her. Yeah. So. Well, that's I mean, and people realize too. This this job takes a toll on you. It takes a toll on the families, like Jay Dobbins said in our interview with him. Oh yeah. Um, you you inflict a lot of battle damage on your families, and so the fact that you could be there for that, I you know, for me, one of the greatest things for me, my mom. You know, we had to put her, well, we didn't have to put her, but she moved into an assisted living facility, had to sell her house. She had part of her lung removed, you know, emphysema. So really challenging. But I was out a week before that. They had a huge snowstorm. Um, We had just moved her into this assisted living facility. Power was out in the little town I was at. Power went out over in Manhattan, Kansas. But I got to be there for her. And a week later, she passed away unexpectedly, you know, and it's like, you just got to, you got to, you know, you got to be blessed that you have that kind of time with them. Yeah, and I'll be honest with you, my time in Baltimore, I had such tremendous friends and I was in such a tremendous group, like when my mom died and, you know, they were the most supportive thing to me. I mean, my family's always supportive. My wife and my kids are always there. Um, but, you know, here, you know, there's, there's, when I retired, my daughter said to me, you know, I said, I feel kind of choked up. It was like my, my oldest one, was second of my last day. And she goes, well, you spent more time with them during your life, dad, than us. And she wasn't saying it to take a shot. Mm-hmm. It's just a fact. Yeah. And, you know, those guys are some of my best friends and I talk to them and, and I, you know, I'm fortunate to have had them as friends during those times. Same. It was the same on my end after I retired. You know, you, especially once you get in a supervisory role, you have a little bit more leniency to make events with your kids. And, and I thought I did a good job. But, you know, after I retired, you, you know, you really have a chance now to sit down and get to know your family well and, and they've grown and you've missed so much of their lives. And and it was the same thing. They didn't mean it to be derogatory. It's just like, yeah, you were never around, Dad. Yep. Yep. It's like, wow. All right, this is getting too fucking now. serious, man. We got. <laughs> All right, man. This is not Doctor Phil. Okay. You okay. Know, let's let's go let's go back up. Let's talk some shit now. So okay. Um, but let's. So you're in Baltimore, and look, we get it, it's a tough thing. A father dying is one thing, but a mother is a special place in a heart, especially for a son. Um, what? How did that impact you when you started thinking about your next assignment? 
So I finished in Baltimore. I was, and I was very fortunate in Baltimore. I did. I was part of really, really good cases. Uh, I was one of the lead investigators on, on a on a prison gang case that spanned over a couple years. Um, you know, home invasion robbery cases. Baltimore is a, Baltimore was a great place for me, kind of like Newark, New Jersey was. Um, but I'm kind of at the end, and and you know, you know, I, I'm doing a lot of soul searching at this time, and and I didn't really take a lot of time for myself. Um, during the lead up to 2010, right? Like I started in 1990, it's 2010 and, uh, you know, what am I doing? Right. Well, you've got 25 years on total by this time, right? Cause you got five years from the PD, right? And then, well, no, that's, I have 20 years on at that time. Oh, 20, 20 years. Okay. I started in 1990. So okay. it's my first academy. Oh, that's right. Class. Then you got a yeah, DEA yeah. later, right? Yeah, so I got 20 years in, which a lot of police departments guys are punching out, right? You know, so I got 20 years in. And, um, you know, one of the things I was like, I'm not feeling, you know, uh, tremendously satisfied with where I'm at. And it, it's not like I, I hated it. I had no reason to leave Baltimore. I had great friends, great prosecutors I worked with. Um, couldn't ask for much more. But I got a call from Eric Stouch. And... Um, he he reached out to me and he said, hey, look, I am part of the, you know, I'm, he's down at SOD. He's in this, the BIU groups. Um, it was 960 at the time. And he says, a bi bilateral investigation unit, meaning no investigation is done um, by ourselves uh, unilaterally without counterpart assistance. Okay. So you're not going in there like the CIA and running some quiet operation that nobody is aware of. Um, you're working with the law enforcement counterparts of whatever country you're in. Um, so Eric says, he goes, I think you'd fit in here. He goes, it, it, it kind of fits your, your, how you do things. Cause I like things a little different. We used to do, um, uh, Hobbs Act robbery cases where we, you know, that's the old, uh, red rum deal where we'd put the Colombians in the warehouse with all the cocaine and we'd have a robbery crew come in and try and rob them when we catch everybody, you know, that kind of stuff. So, well, Real quick, too, just let people know, too, the Hobbs Act, one of the great things about that federal law is that if you rob, for example, a Wendy's, if they wanted to be pricks, they could charge you with the Hobbs Act because Wendy's is involved in interstate commerce, and that provided the federal nexus for them to come in and make a federal case against you for robbing a Wendy's. Yes, that's the whole thing. It's the commerce clause, right? And 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 that's the good thing. So, you know, we that was kind of—I like to do things like that. I like— different. I didn't like your, well, and everybody can just get dope. You know, you go buy a, a buy. Yeah. And you thought I was just another pretty face and didn't know all of these things you're slinging at me. Go ahead. We Mur never Mur thought that. We never thought that about you. Hey, Murph, Murph, Murph said some things <laughs> offline, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> just remember, I'm like hey. the NSA. Everything is recorded. Hey, Tommy, too. Uh, so you're talking about the BIU and there's two groups, 959 and 960. Can you explain to the listeners what those numbers represent and what's the difference? So they're, they're statute related. And, and the 959 focused on uh, drugs coming in and out of the United States. I can't remember the exact. Uh, I'm trying to remember. It was um, conspiracy to import into the United States drugs was the nine point cocaine, whatever was the nine five nine charge. And normally the nine sixty charge dealt with material support to a terrorist organization. Um, and we use that because it, at the time that came up post nine 11, because the Taliban was using, um, drug money to fuel a lot of, or pay for a lot of its terrorist Fucking organization. Opium, man. They were the opium Kings. I mean, it's oh, yeah. 
Well, it's that. And then you had you had Hezbollah, which I'm sure Zach talked to you about. And Hezbollah involved directly with the yep. Colombians and the Mexicans. And and so the terrorist organizations got heavily involved in drug trafficking, um, um, although the CIA didn't believe it for so long because, you know, terrorists don't do don't sell drugs. Uh, they are only true believers. Um, they'll and it was the same when we had Escobar. They, they didn't think that FARC was involved in yeah. providing protection at cocaine labs. It's, and geez. now FARC is involved in what? Half the distribution of cocaine in the world now? Well, yeah, I, yeah. They're, they're, they're phenomenal. Wasn't that part of the peace agreement they came to? Wasn't that like an <laughs> part of the peace agreement? Uh, Which is time? It kind of like, well, you know, it's just like a minor incursion. If you just deal dope, we're good, you know, but don't get into terrorism again. Uh, it's not, it's the same bullshit that's going to happen in Afghanistan, thanks to thanks to belo- our beloved Joe Biden. So, um, yeah, th- I, but I digress. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, the so, previous message is neither supported nor denied by the current <laughs> hosts of this podcast, but we, we try to remain a little bit neutral, but our guests can go anywhere they want to. And we, we pick on everybody. And, and don't, and don't get me wrong. I'll pick on Trump a second, too, because he's the one who had the meeting with the people in Qatar to try and pull us out first. So he was an idiot, too, about that. They, they, they could have done this the right way, and neither one of them did. Um, but that again, I digress. Um, so, yeah, so I finished in Baltimore. Stouch calls me, and he says, hey, you should put in for this job. So I said, okay. So I talked to, again, Lou Millions to GS, a name you guys said have been heard before. And I call Lou and I talk to him about the job and it's a lot of traveling. And so I go home and I talk to my wife and she says, look, if that's what you want to do, go ahead and do it. She goes, I don't think you're going to like the traveling. And I said, well, we'll but give you it know, a that shot. That is a dangerous thing for a wife to go, okay, if you want to do it, that's fine with me, honey. Right? Look, I got to be honest with you. My wife's a little different. I mean, like she's, she's like, she really means that. I mean, my wife is not one who waits for the sun to rise and set on fucking where I'm at. Okay. My girls got horses. They're busy. My wife rides horses. My wife's involved in the U S equestrian federation. She's involved in these things at these different farms. She don't have, she, she's got her own life going on and you know, so, so she doesn't have time for your shit. So go do whatever right. you want to do. Just, right. Yeah. Just, just keep making sure the paycheck gets direct Make sure deposit. the check clears the bank and we're good. The mortgage is paid. We're good. Yeah, go do your thing, pal. Yeah, I think we're she, married to sisters here. Yeah. I mean, she was just like that. So it was, it, it, it was a good thing. So, um, I applied and, you know, it, it took a little bit. Well, I shouldn't say it took a little bit. I was, I guess I got there in October. I can't remember when Stouch called me, he called me the summer of 2011. I got there, I guess in like, like October of 2011. Well, so what kind of a, so, I mean, to put it in perspective, tell me if, tell me if this analogy is is correct or incorrect or sort of spot on. I think of SOD kind of like the way SEAL Team 6 is to the Navy SEALs. There's a lot of SEAL teams. They're all good operators. But SEAL Team 6 is is a step above the other folks in terms of the assignments they're asked to take on, their skills, their abilities, because it was SEAL Team 6 who went after bin Laden. You know, it's SEAL Team 6 who's been involved in several of the operations, kind of like Delta, you know, and stuff like that. Is that a fair, is that a fair analogy? It, it kind of, I, I mean, what I would say is, is what you have, cause there's a lot of guys who are really talented out there doing good work in, in, in various cities around the world. What we have at SOD, you have really good guys working there who are just as talented as anybody else in these cities. Um, and probably, you know, in, in New York, it's DEA, some guys who are, you know, they're all on par, but you're at, the, you would be at the top level of New York. But the difference is SOD has resources. 
And when you have resources, uh, it makes a difference in what you can do. And that becomes the difference between um, doing a victim, arresting a victim route and things like you that. You might have resources too, but but not everybody is not everybody is cut out to be on SOD either. So you might be doing good work in other areas, but what is the what is the mentality or the mindset they're looking for for people who come to SOD? Um, they want you to work. They want you to work independently. And the only measure of success is an indictment and arrest. An indictment's great, but the arrest has to take place and you have to get that person back to the United States to face charges. If you're not doing that, you have no business there. It's not just None. pushing paper. It's actually no. making the arrest, bringing the person back to face you know, you don't control what happens after that, but they got to be back in the U.S. Yeah, the goal is if you're if they're you know, look, if there's some things you don't control, such as an extradition treaty or things like that, that, that get very. And that could take like in the case of Victor Boot. What was that, Steve? Zach said it took two years or something to get Victor back. Uh, uh, at least I think it was longer than that. It was amazing. Might how be long three it took. years. Yeah. Biggest criminals. You just got to admire the work they're doing on this so far. There's a lot of great information coming out in part two on Thursday. In the meantime, go visit our webpage, Game of Crimes Podcast. Dot com. We've got a lot of great stuff over there. We've got our book page. We've got merch. We've got a lot of pictures from this episode that'll be there as well. Also, visit us on the socials at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. And go visit us at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have a ton of great content. Our new segment, 911, What's Your Emergency? We got a lot of good positive feedback about that, so we're doing that. And stay tuned. We've got some exclusive access to Dave and Chris. You're going to hear about those two guys. They were the inspiration for season three on Narcos and taking down the Cali cartel. Until then, make sure you tune in this coming Thursday for part two of Tommy Sendrick and hunting Paul LaRue. And thank you once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes. <laughs>